In a world filled with movies, it can be hard to choose just one to watch. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I'm not deciding this. What do you want to watch? I asked first. Come on. What do you want to watch? No. What do you want to watch? What do you want to watch, Patrick? What do you Where even watch? narrowing down a you genre can be a struggle. How about we watch a drama? Too many emotions. Okay, then how about we watch an action film? Too many explosions. I know, I know. Let's watch a horror movie. Uh... Wouldn't it be easier to leave things to chance? Okay, talking isn't getting us anywhere. We need to figure out another way to go. Why don't we just roll some dice to figure out who gets to pick and what genre we do? Whatever. Here we go. Welcome to the Diecast Movie Podcast, where the movie we watch is decided by the roll of a die. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Diecast Movie Review Podcast. My name is Michaela Turk, and I'm joined here with my dad, Steve, and my brother, Ben. And this episode is a very special episode. It's our one-year anniversary. Yay! A round of applause. And joining us here today for our anniversary episode is... Yes, it's Joshua Kennedy, writer director, producer, international man of mystery. We've had him on before. <laughs> when I, when I, we had him on before when I did an interview with him. And also we've interviewed, I'm not interviewed, but reviewed one of his movies, House of the Gorgon. And um, he's done many films that are coming down the pipe. Josh, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me back. I can't believe it's been a year, we said, since uh, since the first one or for uh, since... Um Inherit the Wind. Well, Inherit the Wind was Inherit the first the one, wind right? Was yep. the first one, yes. the wind was the first one. That's right, yeah. It'll be very close to the one-year anniversary. Very close. Wow. Congratulations, guys. One year. Yeah, Woo! Thank you. Thanks. And this episode is very special. So for our anniversary episode, we decided to do It's a Mad. 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 World. <laughs> so, yeah, we're doing It's Mad, 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 World. There we go. I lost count halfway through. You work at a library. Learn the count. That has yeah. nothing to do with being a Dewey library. Decimal System. Yeah. You so, count. You count up. Well, yeah, but I do it backwards. I shelve the cart backwards. I start in the 900s. Go that way. That's why things are always <laughs> out of order at Eldersburg. Okay. On to the next part. What happened? I go away for a minute and I come back and it's like, oh, hell, yeah. oh, hell broke loose. Um, it's a mad world, Dad. It's, it, it's, it's a mad I was just going to say that. It's a mad world. <laughs> The reason, one of the reasons we picked this movie, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, was because it's just been a crazy year. We need a comedy. The title of itself just explains everything that's kind of happening in a, in a weird way. Um, so it's, 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 let's take a time to have a little chance to laugh, enjoy a good old movie from 1963, I believe. I completely agree. And it's funny you bring that up because watching it, because I watched it uh, earlier this week. I spread it, because it's so long, I spread it out over like three nights. But I thought of that. I was like, what a lovely, I mean, among other things, in comparison to the year and time we're living in now, what a lovely time capsule of a movie, of, of the, the capturing the, the, the feel of the country, capturing performances from all these performers that are no longer with us, no longer with us obviously, and, and just a, a perfect little time capsule of a of a time that i never experienced i guess most of us i mean steve i 
you didn't you didn't see this in the, when it first came out, did you? I was born in 1968, and this came out in 1963. So there was well, there you go. There's so no way I saw it. No way. I know. <laughs> I was just a little like make sure, just to make sure. Um, we're, I guess we're all nostalgic for that time that we never <laughs> lived through. Um, but yeah, compared to the to the the 2020 that we're living in now, it's such a fun, innocent little little big movie. <laughs> Yeah, very big. Yeah, very it makes long. some of the long yeah, yeah. movies nowadays seem pretty short. This, this is yeah. And for people listening, this podcast is also going to be unusual because it won't just be the four of us that will be giving opinions. We actually have several other special guests because this movie had its principal cast and then it had the supporting cast. And we have the supporting cast of a lot of different people that are going to be contributing different um, aspects to the thing. You're talking about the trailer, the music, the special effects, um, and all that kind of different things as we go through the movie. So as you're hearing it, you'll we'll, we'll introduce them, and then you'll get to hear their opinions and some of their research on with it. So it, we decided with this movie, let's just go big, because that's the way Stanley Kramer made it big. Amen. I love it. But just before we start with the movie, Josh, what's been up with you and Gooey Productions? Gooey Productions were kind of, it's, uh, my buddy Dan summed it up perfectly it, with this, again, going back to this, what a wacky, what a mad, 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 mad year that we've been living in. Um, uh, he described everything as being in holding pattern. Like we're in a plane and we're in holding patterns waiting for, uh, you know, time when we can all, I mean, my cast can re-meet and, Finished finish completing uh, the two movies, the three movies that I'm working on, Cowgirls versus Pterodactyls, which has been in the works for two and a half years, and Saturnalia, and Mantipus. And hopefully, I mean, once things, again, we're in holding patterns, just waiting for the time to start filming again, and, and uh, things are still cooking. I, um, it's definitely, hopefully by Christmas, we'll have two movies out for gooey films. But other than that, spirits are high and uh, just doing what we can to stay sane. Um, and you guys, I guess all is, all is well on your end. Yeah. The library, um, currently isn't open to the public yet, but we have a express hold service. So we're getting a lot of people materials and, everything and they're giving them back to us and it's been working pretty fishing good bowls and yep fishing <laughs> fishing poles and and gopros <laughs> and books and knitting needles and everything you typically cool. get from a library and more yeah and more <laughs> yeah that should be our library sale pitch you can get books movies cds all the regular stuff you can get from a library and more, including and fishing more. poles. <laughs> I don't know fishing poles. That's 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 the that's the, the thing to beat here. That's <laughs> I've never heard of a library renting exactly. out fishing poles. That's awesome. Yeah, exactly. You, you should you should talk poles. to the libraries in Texas and say, "Look, man, we need fishing poles. <laughs> <laughs> we need it now." <laughs> but no, I think we've all been doing pretty well. Just you know, as we go as we've been going through this pandemic and stuff as. Um, 2020 has been an interesting year as we have all discussed and everybody knows. And we're just, hopefully this podcast will give people a chance to have that um, um, release from it. You know, that so they don't have to keep living everything that's been going on and give a chance to think about something else. Yes. Yes. Just, just like the movie, just like the movie. 
And um, in this movie, Stanley Kramer is the director of it, and um, he wanted to show people that he can do things besides comedies. As we know, we last year, the movie that you joined us with was Inherit the Wind, which, um, which three of the four of us loved, and one person, there was one descending vote. I still don't like that movie. And, and you're, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that's that. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. And for those that want to listen to that, that's episode one. Go back. You can listen to it and you can hear our discussion with it. And um, we talked a lot about Stanley Kramer. But in this particular episode, Ansel Farage, who is a director, for independent director also, who's done Loon Lake, Will and Liz, the Dr. Mabuse films, is going to talk about Stanley Kramer. And if you guys listen in, I hope you enjoy. Hi, this is Ansel Farage. I'm an independent film director. I've directed such movies as Loon Lake, The Last Case of August T. Harrison, a couple Dr. Mabuse uh, revisionist films, and a love story, Will and Liz. And I'm going to be talking to you for the next couple minutes about Stanley Kramer, the director of It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Stanley Kramer was born September 29th, 1913, his mom worked at Paramount's New York office, and his uncle was in the distribution department at Universal. And he had a knack for writing, and at 19, he got himself an internship in the writer's department at 20th Century Fox and moved out to California. He worked at various jobs in the industry in various levels and capacities before World War II called him up for service, and he began making army training films alongside Frank Capra, who I think is a perfect filmmaker to not compare, but sit alongside of Stanley Kramer in terms of American cinema. World War II finally came to a close, and Stanley Kramer decided he was going to make movies, but he quickly found there was no work in Hollywood after the war. His only option was to start his own production company. So, with his army friend Carl Foreman, which would be his producer, and writer Herbert Baker and publicist George Glass, they formed Screenplays Incorporated, which later became Stanley Kramer Productions. His original independent productions were based on risky, complex material that wasn't studio-friendly, but often thought-provoking, if, and if controversial, all the better, because it just helps set the work apart in the independent scene. One of his very first productions that he produced was a film called So This Is New York, which was ironically a comedy directed by Richard Fleischer, the son of Max Fleischer, the great cartoonist. He followed that up with Champion, based on a story by Ring Lardner, which was scripted by Herbert Baker and starred Kirk Douglas in one of his early roles. And it was a film that cemented Kirk Douglas's status as a major Hollywood star. That was soon followed up with Home of the Brave, which was directed by Mark Robeson, whom many of you might know from Val Luton's films. It was a drama centered around an African-American soldier and the horrors he experienced during World War II. He followed that up with The Men, which starred Marlon Brando in an early film appearance, and this was about disabled World War II veterans. The film was another critical success. All of this attention and notoriety eventually led to head of Columbia Pictures, a notorious movie mogul, Harry Cohn, who offered Stanley Kramer a production distribution deal with Columbia. And Stanley Kramer took this deal because he wanted to direct, and he saw this as an opportunity to begin working within a secure financial situation within the studios where he could make bigger projects using studio resources. Stanley Kramer's final independent production is The Great Western High Noon, starring Grace Kelly and Gary Cooper. The film is an allegory for McCarthyism, and during the film's production, Stanley Kramer's producing partner and war buddy Carl Foreman 
was called before HUAC, which ultimately led to the dissolution of Foreman and Kramer's production team. During his stay at Columbia, Stanley Kramer produced an eclectic range of films, yet they all still maintained thought-provoking ideas and themes under the guise of commercial studio entertainment. He produced such films as The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, which is the Dr. Zeus-penned horror film for children. <laughs> One of my favorite movies, The Member of the Wedding, with Julie Harris, Ethel Waters, and Brandon DeWild. It's a fantastic Broadway drama adapted for the silver screen. A great film noir, The Sniper, with Arthur Franz, a really raw uh, cinema verite-type film noir. He produced The Wild One, which made a star of Marlon Brando and made Bikers Forever Cool. He also produced the film adaptation of Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman for Columbia. After producing The Cane Mutiny for Columbia, he set out once again as an independent maverick, but now Stanley Kramer would direct. One of his first big hits was The Defiant Ones, starring Sidney Poitier and Tony Curtis, a great film about racism. He followed that up with On the Beach, which was a film about nuclear devastation. Inherit the Wind quickly followed, based on the famous Monkey Trial, starring Spencer Tracy. Judgment at Nuremberg followed Inherit the Wind and also featured Spencer Tracy. And that brings us to It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. After Judgment at Nuremberg, Stanley Kramer wanted to change the air and show that he could do something light and funny. And after receiving a pitch from writer William Rose, who scripted the brilliant Ealing Studios dark comedy The Lady Killers, Kramer set out to make this the ultimate comedy film. He wanted to prove to everybody that he could do something funny and would show them in his own words. And to make the ultimate comedy, Kramer would enlist every comedian to grace the silver screen or stage, ensuring the film's comedic value. This casting stunt quickly became the talk of Hollywood, and soon every comedian was hoping to land a part in the film, even a cameo in Kramer's opus, not wanting to miss out on the party. Kramer anchored the madness with his go-to cinematic ego, Spencer Tracy, in their third cinematic collaboration. And Spencer Tracy apparently had the time of his life on the project, just laughing hysterically and enjoying all the attention the comedians were lavishing upon him. So epic and elaborate the f was the f so epic and elaborate was the film that the cast was presented with two different scripts: one with dialogue and story, and one for just action and antics. And Kramer was in full control. Jonathan Winters said at the film's press conference that. Stanley Kramer was so in control of the production that the comedians had no need to ad-lib. They just needed to be and follow the plan as laid out by Kramer and William Rose. And the company on Mask created movie magic with Stanley Kramer as their conductor. Stanley Kramer's love and enthusiasm for the Mad World Project never dwindled. In 1974, he reunited comedians Buddy Hackett, Jonathan Winters, and Sid Caesar, and they all reminisced about the film's production for ABC TV. He also teased follow-up projects The Shakes of Araby and It's a Funny, Funny World in the years that followed, which would have reunited cast and crew. But ultimately, these projects never materialized. It's a Mad, 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 Mad World was a huge success for Stanley Kramer. And with his comedic vision justified, he returned to so-called message pictures. He followed the film up with Ship of Fools, which was an ensemble piece about the rise of Nazism. And then his masterpiece of the 60s, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which also starred Spencer Tracy and was also scripted by William Rose. He made a couple pictures in the 70s, most notably The Secret of Santa Victoria, also scripted by William Rose, and Bless the Beasts and Children. But none of the films really lived up to his earlier works. Speaking personally, something I've always admired about Stanley Kramer's filmmaking aesthetic was his use of deep focus photography, keeping everything in his frame perfectly sharp and detailed so we can see everything. And his long extended takes, very focused on the natural 
intimate and honest performances. Just us sitting there watching two people talking and being in the moment, genuinely feeling the moment, not interrupting it with cuts or flashy camera work, just letting the material and performer be honest and open in front of the camera. Something else I also admire as an independent filmmaker, having made quite a few films in the horror thriller genre, was Stanley Kramer's desire to break out of his own dramatic genre and show that he could do something light and funny. I felt much the same when I wanted to break out of my genre and I produced my romantic love story, Will and Liz. And sometimes just as a filmmaker, you need that change of air. You need that, that uh, cinematic stretch, so to speak, to just loosen you up and, and refresh you. And I can totally understand Stanley Kramer's desire to prove that he was more than just a dr dramatic message guy. My own opinion about It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, to be honest, I do find the film far more admirable rather than enjoyable. It is a wonder of filmmaking and a balancing act of antics and action, but I do feel it might be a tad overstuffed and a little repetitive at times. But the sheer scope, and not just that amazing super 70-millimeter Panavision frame, but also the, the stunts, the incredible ensemble of comedic stars and overall madness, Kramer's attempt to, in his own words, show them all he could pull off comedy with an epic of madness to end all comedies. The boldness of filmmaking spirit must be saluted and appreciated. It, it was a huge box office hit, and the fact that we're still talking about it only proves that he did pull it off and indeed showed him. Before concluding, I'd like to leave you with this quote from 1949, which, as an independent filmmaker, I find to be incredibly resonant still today in 2020 in our very strange era of Amazon, Netflix, and Disney Plus now dominating the movie-making and distribution sphere and the onslaught of repetitive superhero formulaic action films. Stanley Kramer said, I firmly believe that the independent producer today can select material which will return vitality to the motion picture industry. I think people are completely fed up with the pattern. The independent has simply got to destroy that pattern. If our industry is to flourish, we must break away from formula thinking. Again, I thank you for listening. My name was Ansel Farage. You can check out my work at www.hollandsworthproductions.com, H-O-L-L-I-N-S-W-O-R-T-H productions.com. I was honored to take part in this mad commentary, and thank you again. So, Josh, what did you think about his um, end quote there from Stanley Kramer about independent films and how they were very important in today's society, especially? It's, it's independent films. You get such a, uh, unique, um, vision. You get a clear vision. I mean, most of the time I'll say, uh, with, with independent films. I mean, with me, I, I'm in charge of the film. I, I, it's my own thing. No one's telling me what to do. There isn't a committee that maybe a big studio will have. And it's like, we need this, we need this, we need this. It's like, there's one singular vision, uh, with, I mean, I'm trying to think. Ansel has it, and, and Roger Corman has it. The singular director's vision, which I think is incredibly important, because uh, with, with the big studio films, you don't often get that. There, there are few. Again, there are exceptions to every rule, but but most of filmmaking nowadays. I mean, the big Marvel stuff, the Disney stuff. There's, I'm sure, there are hundreds of tables of people that 
dictate what the film's going to be, and and that's why I think most of the original um, films come from from the independent circuit. Would, would you agree? Well, I definitely agree, and um, I know like with your films, we've enjoyed them, and I know with Ansel's, one of the things he brought up in his uh, thing we just heard was um, how most of his stuff was um, horror suspense related. And then he did Will and Liz, which was a, which was a romantic movie. And he quickly decided, like he said, like Stanley Kramer, he wanted to change it up, have something different. And it helped him with his creative flow after doing that, because it was able to go to stretch himself a little bit and do that as a creator. And that's, and that's what I think, which is so important about independent films and why we, as a podcast, try to support independent filmmakers like yourself, Ansel, Michael Wirth, um, Christopher Mim, those kind of guys, because people don't always hear about these independent films and you got to get the word out there so people can go and see them. And, and a lot of it is great work. And um, yes, I mean, you can pick about the budgets are low and that they could be better with effects and this and that. But really, if you have a good script, if you have a good cast and you have good direction and cinematography, it's always going to show in the end where if you have a great a film that has a, a poor script, poor cast, but great special effects, it's eye candy, but that's it. I mean, it's not really worth rewatching and, and you don't really learn anything. And those are the ones you end up pulling at your cell phone and start looking at stuff as you wait for the next bit of eye candy to show up. I like the independent yeah. films where you're not getting pulled over and looking at your phone. Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> you see, I've always kind of seen independent versus the larger studio films as a trade-off, where for the independent films, the director has more freedom usually and can create what they want within their budget constraints, but they conversely have a much lower budget than they would at most studios. So it really turns into them making their vision come true with less money than they could have, versus having more money to make the film but not getting their full vision. Exactly. You summed it up perfectly. Good night, folks. <laughs> <laughs> We're done. <laughs> so what I was saying about, like, in, in, in a sense, Stanley Kramer was an independent filmmaker at heart with all of his work. And yeah. he just he loved to go into different topics. As we talked about Inherit the Wind, it was um, freedom to be able to think and speak that kind of stuff. Um, the defined ones, as, as Ansel said, it was basically the race relations issues. And, um, of course, On the Beach, one of my favorite movies with Gregory Peck, you know, talking about yeah. with nuclear holocaust, how, how the world would come to an end. And um, so he was, and, of course, w- w- um, guess who's coming to dinner? Again, race, rela- race relations. And it's... Arguably, he did it the best way because it's not like right in your face. It's being talked about. Or I guess you could say on the beach was pretty. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) On your face. But he brings that out to the public and then people can have those discussions and learn and then try to see how these things should be changed and that kind of stuff. So he was a a person who did what he wanted to do and was ahead of his time. And I think that that should be um, rewarded you know, for, um, but I think he was always an independent filmmaker. So that's why I think it's kind of good that we talk about independent film work and we talk about Stanley Kramer because he, yeah. even though he had a budget that you would die for of 9.4 million oh, for man. a film, that, that'd be like your whole career 
right there for a budget. That's like 10 years of my life doesn't even come close to adding up to that. <laughs> but but you, you bring up a, a, a good thing that, that he's, I mean, just to go from, you said inherit the wind and then he went into it's it's a mad mad world right after is that that the right order yeah i believe so it's defined one on the beach inherit the wind and it's a mad 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 world yeah and just just the ability and and you know the budget and just the, the the mindset to say i'm going to make the biggest comedy ever in the history of cinema, even when they're talking about this in 2020, there's still, it's still going to be considered one of the biggest, if not the, I mean, I can't think of anything that comes close in terms of just sheer size. I mean, people talk about, you know, Ben-Hur and, and the 10 commandments and, and the greatest story ever told. And it's like, no, it's a mad, 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 how many four, it's four. A mad, mad, four. mad, mad world yep. it needs to be lumped in there. Cause it's just so humongous of a movie. Um, I'm surprised it's not talked on more epic with the title, with the, the genre epic attached to it. Cause it's, it's just so big anyway, to go back, just to have that mindset to, to that independent mindset to, to say, Hey, you know what? Let's make the biggest freaking comedy ever made. And just that, to have the power to do that. That's, I mean, that's the ultimate independent, producer director yeah not just that but he like reached and got a like a great cast for it too where he exactly yeah spencer tracy's back from uh inherit the wind oh judgment at nuremberg that was in between oh oh he did oh oh oh, 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 yes i forgot about that one Sorry, that's ben. a good one. I just remember that that's for, so we don't get people writing us emails, which would be a change. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you talk about you got every great comedian there, there that you can think of. I'll, I'll read a couple. You guys can each read a couple here. I mean, Milton Berle, Sid Caesar, uh, Ethel Marman, Mickey Rooney, Dick Sean, Buddy Hackett, Phil Silvers, John Winters. Terry Thomas, Eddie Adams, and Dorothy Provine were all the principal cast. I mean, you're talking about some of them, some of them, the comedic greats of their time. And for some, this is really their biggest picture for a chance, to, you know, for film wise, for people to be seen. And that's not counting the supporting cast, the guest, star, the guest stars, or the cameos that are scattered throughout here. I mean, you're ta- everybody wanted to be in this film that was a comedian. And um, it, it's just amazing, you know, who's on this list. And he even brought back people that yeah. hadn't been making films for a while or hadn't been as big as they used to be. Like Buster Keaton. Yes. He's back in this film. Uh, the Three Stooges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Don Knotts, yeah. who I think at this time was doing TV, came on for the film. And he was like a well, cameo and, appearance. And, yeah. And, and that taps into something that I kind of brought up before that you, you get this gigantic group wheelbarrow of, of people and just people that, I mean, from stage, I mean, Ethel Marmon did a lot of stage stuff and, and it's almost sad in a way that, that a lot of their, and a bunch of the TV stuff that they did hasn't survived to, to now, but it's like, this is a nice little snapshot of the performers of that time that just their, their work hasn't really survived if that makes sense, like because a lot of them came from radio and the vaudeville and the, the the Broadway stage, of course, there's no record of that, and this is like their little nugget of. It's a way for them to continue to be remembered by those who yes, were able yes. to see them. And, uh, I'll sum it up. 
there you go. And that was one of the things that was so special for me with this film is I remember watching it on TV. And of course it was an event, you know, it's, you know, you got, it's a mad, 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 mad world. And my dad would watch it with me and he'd be the one pointing out, Oh, this is so-and-so and that's so-and-so, especially the cameras. Cause you know, when you're a young boy, you don't know who anybody really is in the cast. You know, you know, a few names, but and then you learn as time goes on. Cause you see, you do see him in other things, but it's, but some of them, as you mentioned, this is this is it. This is your only chance to see him. Or this could have, like for Jonathan Winters, this was the launching of him in a sense because this was his first movie and really got the the public to really see him in a in a meaty role. And I love Jonathan Winters. I, I, his his role is just great as um, Lenny Pike. Pike. Yes, Lenny Pike when he's the you know the truck driver. I, he's always been my favorite character in the movie, and I always love the line when. He um, ends up getting into an accident with um, the other car driven by Finch, you know, which is Milton Berle's character, and he he wrecks both of them, and they're getting the the stuff out of the back, and they give him the bike, and he goes, "But it's a little girl's bike," and and then he's like, "This is really embarrassing," and the way he delivers it and his facial expressions, it's just priceless, you know. And and then of course the gas station scene later on, I mean. uh, it, it's just it's just gold sheer gold and well um, can we go go ahead go ahead Sorry, i was gonna say ahead. what Keep i was going. gonna say anybody else when because i have to talk about jonathan who was your favorite character josh i was just gonna say that um i was gonna say like let's all go around uh, no it's jonathan winters uh for sure um yeah you you, you took all the, the good lines i mean because he has all the, the little great moments um and of course uh um I just lost my train of thought. There was something else I was going to. Oh, um, the little tiny, I mean, he's on screen for two seconds, but Jack Benny's little moment when he drives up with a little bowler hat and, and there he asks if Ethel Merman needs help. And she goes, no, we don't need any help from you. And it's just, he has one pause. To, well, that cracks me up every single time. I just wanted to bring that in. Well, and he just drives off. That was, and that was originally supposed to be, um, uh, Stan Laurel. Stan Laurels. Yes, that's right. And that's why he has the little the little hat on. I just read about that last week when I saw it. I was like, oh, interesting. Um, and Stan Laurel, who refused to do it because he didn't want to, he made a promise to uh, Hart Oliver. I forget what his first name was. Is it Oliver Hardy? Yeah. Let's call him Laurel Oliver. Oliver. Yeah, Laurel oh, Hardy. yes, yes. And he said he would. He promised never to be in a, another movie without him because he get passed away. So that's why Jack Benny does it. Anyway, um, long story short, that part always cracks me up. Um, his little cameo. Uh, ben, what about you? I think I kind of have two favorites in this film. My least, my least favorite character, but one of the roles I'm more appreciative of was was Ethel Merman as Miss Marcus. Because you hate Miss Marcus so much through the whole film. Because she is just... Everyone does. She is the meanest, most manipulative person in the film. She, like, the modern-day Karen memes, that's Miss Marcus. (laughs) I even said that to Michaela. I was like, dang, she's a real Karen. As we were watching it. Because I had forgotten that she was such... Um, like controlling in-law from the last time that I had seen it and it was right away like she, she didn't really change through the whole film she just got meaner 
She is your stereotypical mother-in-law that you do not want to have come over. And I got to say this. It's another Jonathan Winters line. When they're in the, the, the tow truck and they're all together, Sylvester, you know, Ethel Merman, Milton Berle, and, and it's Milton Berle, um, Terry Thomas, and Jonathan Winters are in the back standing behind the cab part of the tow truck. And uh, Milton Berle's character, uh, Russell Finch, is going to, it kept saying, it wasn't our fault. We wanted to stop for you earlier. You know, I wanted to stop. He wanted to stop. My wife wanted to stop. She wanted us to keep going. And Jonathan goes, "I'm basically, you don't have to tell me. I tr- I know it's the way she is. And if this was and if this was a bad horror film and she was in it, I know it would be true. Something like that. It was funny. As <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. I know what you're talking. Yes, yes, yeah. But okay, what about you? Oh, oh sorry, Ben. Talk about his. Other favorite, favorite. That's right. So, that's right. The character I actually liked the most was, um, oh gosh, it was Otto Meyer. Because he just looks cool on screen, how you can kind of tell he's a con man. As soon as you see him, you're like, this is like a car salesman. He's going to scam everyone. And then through the whole movie, you kind of know he's pulling something. Phil Silvers is always known to play the guy you never want to trust. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, at the end, when he's counting how many shares they get, he goes one, two, oh, yeah. points to himself for one, two, three, four, and then he comes around and points to himself again and says 17. At least I think he says 17. No, he says 15. He, he says 15. 15. Oh, but uh, Jonathan Winter's character catches on to it, and then him and Sylvester throw him in a hole <laughs> like they yeah. were going to bury him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or I mean, the demon. I mean, we're we're just rap, throwing out lines um, towards the end when when uh, Jonathan Winters has been looking for Phil Silvers and he comes out and he goes, "Oh no!" and, and Jonathan went, "Oh yes!" and he goes and chases after me. <laughs> that little glint, you see that little glint of revenge. Oh yeah, and he runs off. Oh, good stuff. Good yeah. stuff. I have to say, go ahead, Michaela. Um, some of my, I guess, two of my favorite characters are. Um, Ding Bell and Benji, who uh, Benji's played by Buddy Hackett and Ding Bell is played by Mickey Rooney. And the interactions that the two of them have while they're trying to fly plane, while the person they got to fly the plane is drunk, knocked out in the back of the plane, is hysterical. And it's just so funny. And who's flying the plane, Michaela? Who's playing? The, oh, uh, Jim Backus, and yeah. what's he, what's he known to play for? He's his the role. millionaire from uh, Gilligan's Island. Fester Hal the Third. Yes, which was great because I I rec- when we saw his face, I was like, oh yeah, that's the that's the millionaire from Gilligan's Island. And then a little mm-hmm. bit, a little ways in, Ben was like, hey, isn't that the guy who plays the millionaire on Gilligan's Island? Like, yes, Ben. <laughs> yes, it is. Sure is. <laughs> also, he was the voice of Mr. Magoo. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it, I just think it's so funny, their interactions in the plane. Because for, I think, for a lot of the movie, it's you just, like, for the most of the movie, you just see them in this plane, like, trying to do stuff for most of their screen time. And... Like, it starts out kind of fine. The one guy's flying the plane. He's flying the plane. And then he's like, make me an old-fashioned. 
and then he's later he's like, "You made this one too sweet. Let me go into the back. Here, you drive." And then Benji's like, "But I don't know how to drive." And he's like, "Just hold up. Put your feet on the rudder and hold this. Great, you're in. Go for it." And it's just like <laughs> he just didn't have a care in the world that he just, you know, he's in this plane in the air and he just gave it over to someone who has never flown before. And it's like you are it's like married. riding a bike. Yeah. You can do it. And then when they get the um A little girl's bike. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like riding a little girl's bike. And then oh, when they finally reach the control tower who gets somebody to try and talk them down. Oh, who was it? Oh, oh my Carl Reiner. Yes. And the yes. colonel. And he sadly just passed away not that long ago. But he He's like, hello, boys. Now I'm going to talk you down. But before I do that, we got to tell you how to do this. But before I can tell you that, we got to tell you how to do this. But before we can even do that, got to tell you how to do this other thing. <laughs> but before I do that, I'm going to give you an inspirational speech. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, my god. And then gosh. it just keeps going, and they just keep going past and past. And then finally, Mickey Rooney takes over and just lands the plane. By sheer luck. I, I do like it that one of the guys in the air traffic controller tower says when the colonel's saying, why don't we just shoot him down? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> why don't we shoot him down, get him over with it? Yeah. And it's just like, you know, that would have been faster. I thought yeah. it was hilarious how Mickey Rooney and Buddy Hackett's characters, they were calming down as it was going on. Like, they had that initial panic but the more they're getting talked to, the calmer they're getting. And this colonel is going crazy. <laughs> like, he's yeah. vestigiously there with them in the plane. Like, he is starting to sweat. He takes off his jacket. He's hanging out the side of the air traffic control tower. Yeah, He's yeah. all caught in the coils of the microphone, which means, you know, he's obviously been pacing and moving and all around. And then... He falls off the side of the building, and all that's holding him up is the cord for the microphone to the control tower. <laughs> and then you just—it's almost like team. a scene out of—it's almost like a scene out of Airplane. I mean, just to talk him down, and then yeah. And of course, all this, this predated—all this predated Airplane and the airport movies and the Gilligan's Island stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. But one thing to time with the plane, I love how when they're flying, you keep seeing. Um, Jim Backus's body being thrown around <laughs> yeah. in the back when they do, when they do barrel rolls and all this other stuff. And you just see the body going boom, 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 boom. It's like if, if he wasn't dead to start with, he's dead by the end of it. <laughs> and when that scene was going on, I don't know if Michaela saw it at first, but as soon as they did it, I was like, oh my God, the guy in the back's dead. And Michaela was like, what? <laughs> you see Mickey Rooney turn around and go like, he's dead. Yeah. Oh, that was great. Now, we talked about the main cast that was in the film. Um, Jeff Owens and Rich Chamberlain from the Classic Cars Club podcast are going to talk about those people that were going to be in the film but ended up not being in the film. And um, so let's let those guys have their say. Hello, everyone. This is Richard Chamberlain. And I'm Jeff Owens. We are from the Classic Horrors Club podcast, and we appreciate Steve inviting us to participate. It's a little out of our ordinary. We usually do horror movies, but this was a great comedy, epic comedy to watch. One thing 
about it that is the cameos. I mean, there are tons of cameos of comedy legends and people that were to be comedy legends, I guess. That's all fascinating. I mean, you you probably saw some. You might have some favorites. I know I did. But when you dig into it, it's really more interesting or as interesting to know the cameos that did not happen and some of the reasons they didn't. So if you listen to us, you know that Richard always does the research and I always just pipe in with my opinion. So Richard's prepared some cameos. We normally do marathon recording sessions. Here I am rambling on and on, but we've got five minutes, 10 since there's two of us, we were told. So <laughs> we'll see what we get. Richard, take it away. Tell us about these cameos. Well, I, I think the one that's probably at the top of my list is that we did get a cameo from Buster Keaton, but he was actually supposed to play a different character. He was supposed to play the character of Smiler Grogan at the beginning of the film. It's thought that Jimmy Durante was supposed to play the character of Jimmy the Crook at the end of the film. That's, that's why he was called, the character was called Jimmy. But as the production wore on, the decision was made to put Jimmy Durante in that, that opening role, and Buster Keaton then was relegated to that much smaller role at the end of the film. Buster Keaton kind of got the shaft on that. He was still in his prime, even though he was much, much older. He got to do his two steps forward, one step back routine at the very end, which is requested by Stanley Kramer. He wanted him to do that routine. There were others, though, that, that you know, didn't make the, the cut for a variety of reasons. For example, Mae West was considered for the part, not really cameo, but she was going to be the, the key part of Milton Berle's mother-in-law that ultimately went to Ethel Merman. I can't see Mae West in that role. No, Ethel, me either. Yeah, Ethel owned it totally. Um, that would have changed a lot. Some of the main cast, too, was supposed to be a little different. Phil Silvers was supposed to be in the film earlier. He was supposed to be apparently at the crash site. Jackie Gleason and Red Skelton were supposed to be some of the principals there at the crash site. Red Skelton couldn't get the time off from his, uh, I think his, his TV show was still on at that point. So he agreed to a cameo, but ultimately he wanted too much money and Stanley Kramer had to say no go. I think that's interesting to see that there's a few people that this was a money thing for them well, others, they just wanted to be in it. They, they knew, they could see that this was going to be epic, and they just wanted a part. Don Rickles, he wanted to be in this and didn't make the cut. And for many, many years, whenever he knew that Stanley Kramer was in the audience, because Stanley would go to Vegas quite frequently and watch him, Don would immediately at the start of the show go down and, and confront Stanley and say, why didn't you let me in the movie? Why wasn't I in the film? On the flip side... Peter Sellers was originally cast as Algernon Hawthorne, but he wanted too much money. So to him, it was, it was more of a gig, and ultimately, he didn't make the cut. Bob Hope wanted to do a cameo, but he was in kind of conflict with his movie studio, and they wouldn't release him to do his cameo. We also know that like Bud Abbott from Abbott and Costello and George Burns were offered roles, but turned them down for whatever reason. The character of Melville Crump was actually supposed to be played by Ernie Kovacs. Ernie Kovacs was married to Edie Adams in real life. Just before filming, Ernie Kovacs was killed in a car accident. Edie Adams acted in the film right after the loss of her husband, and the part of Melville Crump eventually was played by Sid Caesar. 
Another silent legend, Harold Lloyd, was offered the role of the mayor. He declined because he was happily retired. He hadn't worked since 1947 and really didn't want to come out of retirement for this little part. Groucho Marx, he was supposed to be a doctor in the film and was supposed to have the punchline at the very end. He would joke about years later how he was supposed to play Milton Berle's mother-in-law, but you know, I doubt that was that was really the case. That's Groucho being Groucho. Stan Laurel was offered a cameo. He was actually supposed to be the man on the road that ultimately went to Jack Benny. They filmed the scene of a actor in the car with a bowler hat, and then the close-up would have been Stan Laurel in his signature bowler hat. But Stan hadn't acted in a film since 1950. He hadn't performed since 1957 when Oliver Hardy died. And when Ollie died, Stan said he was done. He would never act or perform again without Ollie. And he never did. I don't believe he ever made even a, a public appearance. I don't think maybe one or two. He would talk to people in his home, but he was done performing. So ultimately, the part went to Jack Benny, which is why Jack had a bowler hat. And he never wore a bowler hat because they'd already filmed the scene. I'm glad that cameo didn't happen. I don't think seeing Stan by himself would have been right. It was Stan and Ollie needed to be together. And if Ollie wasn't there, I think it would have been sad. Is there anybody you noticed wasn't in it that you think could have been there? That one thing comes to mind, and I don't even know if she was popular in 1963, Phyllis Diller, would she have been an option or was it too early in her career? That would have been early in her career. I don't know where she was at performing in 63. Yeah, that would have been hilarious to see her in it. You know, one of the things we do on our podcast is we always give context for the movies we watch. You know, was it a first time viewing? What's our first memory of watching it? Things like that. So I just want to real quick say, I remember watching this as a kid, probably multiple times. I didn't remember any details. Uh, all I remembered was this wackiness on the road, all the, the road races and things. I totally forgot about the fire truck and the ladder and all that. And so yeah. That was like watching a new movie for me. It had been many, many years since I had watched it, but I really enjoyed it. I'm not usually much for slapstick, and I, I wouldn't really call this strict slapstick. There were a lot of slapsticky things, but I watched them with appreciation for the people involved more than just the antics or the silliness of it. And some things really gave me a big belly laugh. I didn't laugh through the whole thing, but I, I had a smile on my face and I appreciated it and, and really enjoyed. You know, I remember watching it as a kid as well. And of course, back then with commercials and stuff, I don't know how long it was on. It was a commitment, right? If you were going to watch it. When I was younger, there was fatigue at some point since the movie was so long with commercials. Now, of course, watching it without commercials, it's still a long movie, but it seemed to breeze along really quickly. I was loving seeing all these great actors. I, I loved the opening animated credits from Saul Bass. I loved the music. Carla watched it with me, and she just kept saying, how come they don't make movies like this anymore? I, I agreed. It's like, it's, uh, it is a classic. They, they sought out to make an epic, and I think they accomplished it. I loved it. Lucille Ball, where was she? She was actually one of the names suggested, believe it or not. She was supposed to be one of the female companions. I don't know who she would have played. They mentioned like Martha Ray and, and Imogene Coca. One last comment from me. You mentioned Carla asking why they don't make movies like this anymore. The thing that comes to mind instantly, the closest thing I can think of would be 1941. 
from Steven Spielberg, not so much with cameos, but the sort of epic comedy. And I think it's hard to make an epic comedy because you think of comedy being, you know, quick and fast and yeah. you've got a three hour movie, the laughs sort of wear thin. You've got to really sustain the quality. Well, that was fun. I enjoyed that. So we've got a couple minutes that we can just talk about ourselves and our podcasts. Probably want to give a brief history. Richard and I both are writers by trade, I will say. We met each other in Kansas City and talked for a long time about doing a podcast and got together and did it. It's in the format of a club meeting. Call the meeting to order. We have old business, new business, and uh, usually focus on two or three movies. Classic horror, our cutoff is started out as 78. We've talked about stretching that a little bit. It's a lot of fun. We review movies. We talk about the eras in which they were made and go on just one or two tangents now and then. That's how we end up with three-hour episodes. Once a month, three hours isn't so bad if you divide that out over four weeks. How would you describe it, Rich? You did absolutely perfect. The only thing I would add is that we try to do, not every month, but we try to do themes. During the the summer, we did our drive-in theme, kind of took a look at vintage drive-in double and triple features. We focused on actors, whether it be legends like Karloff or Lugosi, to maybe some people that haven't been covered, like Faye Ray or Lionel Atwell. We try to come up with some fun themes, and, and sometimes, you know, we just pick three movies that are very loosely connected. I think we have a lot of fun with it. We appreciate everybody tuning in when we uh, we crank out those monthly episodes. And as you said, you know, it's it's not bad when you stretch it a long three-hour episode out over the course of four weeks. It's easy to tune in and listen as you're doing whatever you do in your daily travel. Being, a, like I said, the format of a club meeting, we really, really try to solicit participation from people that listen. You know, we've got the phone line, and I guess we should say that here, except I don't know if I can remember it. And we sort of have a running gag on how we announce that. Um, I'll I'll plug it in and got an email address, classichorrors.club at gmail.com. We accept feedback by Smoke Signal and Carrier Pigeon, Facebook. We have a Facebook group page, The Classic Horrors Club Podcast. We would love to have participation. We'll announce the movies ahead of time so people can give feedback. We encourage feedback after the episodes that will play in old business the next time. I know I get tired of hearing myself talk. So as many people as can participate and and join in, we'd love to include it. I absolutely agree. Um, Richard, I never get tired of hearing you talk, though. (laughs) I get tired of hearing me talk. So, yeah, we want to hear feedback. And uh, in addition to the podcast, I think we should just briefly plug our our respective sites that are out there. I'm found at kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. Variety of topics from horror to Laurel and Hardy to old time radio. I kind of try to spread it out and, and cover it all. And where can people find you? Yeah, so my main blog is classicahorrors.club. I have a comic book blog called DC Comics Guy. And then I have a third blog that's just miscellaneous odds and ends, don't post to it too much, called The Reaction Shot. All right, well, I guess we'll sign off. Thanks again, Steve. Looking forward to your future podcast and listening to what everyone else has to say about this movie. Take care, everyone. I thought it was interesting because they tied in a little bit of the stuff that you brought up already, Josh, when you said about Stan Laurel and they, they talked about Stan. Um, they said they were trying to get Lucille Ball to be in it. Um, it was amazing. And Bob and Hope it, almost had a role. 
Yes, and and the other one that I read was it was supposed to be. Um, uh, it's not Buddy Hackett. Who's the other guy? I keep forgetting his name. It's Buddy Hackett and and what's his name? That's in his buddy in the plane. Oh, Mickey Rooney. Uh, Mickey Rooney, and it was supposed to be Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland. And Julie Garland couldn't do it because she was in a TV show or something, and the schedules didn't line up. I was like, "Whoa, that would have been cool too." For for, yeah. for those that don't know, Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland were in so many films together, where it's like, "Let's put on a show." It, it, that would have been great casting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A completely different. I mean, they would have gone a completely. They would probably wouldn't be the same of them in the, the plane as with Buddy Hackett, but it would have been a totally different dynamic. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Jackie Gleason was almost in this movie. I mean, there were so many names that wow. were almost in it. For for, but they would. But then also they would have been subbing out some of the principal cast. So some of the ones that we did yeah. get, we wouldn't have gotten. So it's always good to mm-hmm. speculate. I, f- I think like people used to always say, like if Tom Selleck would have had the role of Indiana Jones, and then what career would he have? Oh had, yeah, but, yeah. But would that movie have done the same with him as it did with Harrison Ford? You know, yeah, you yeah, can't yeah. just put another actor in and say, oh, it would be exactly the same. It changes so many different things, as you know. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, yeah. 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 Do we want to play the trailer? Let's play the trailer. A United Airlines jet lands in Los Angeles, launching the biggest entertainment airlift in motion picture history. The world's press, some 300 newsmen from four continents, Arrive for the Hollywood premiere of Stanley Kramer's There was a certain amount of money buried down in this park. Now, I suggest that we quietly get into our cars, and then when we get down there, we dig up the money, providing that there is some money there. There's only one way to figure it, and that is every man for himself. And so begins the maddest, wildest, zaniest chase ever filmed as our merrymakers race across country by land, by sea, by air. For somewhere, there's a fortune in buried treasure. Which one of our Mad World comedy stars will be the first to reach it? Now, where have I always told you that the smiler hid the dough? Where? Uh, Right there. The world's critics go stark raving mad, mad, mad. The wildest chase comedy on record, raved the New York Journal-American. Nobody's going to get me up in the air. A smash. Has more laughs than any other comedy in the history of the screen, raved the Los Angeles Herald-Examiner. I can't you have a little confidence in me? It's a man. afford to miss this wildest comedy ever filmed added the boston record american help help everything you've heard is true it's the biggest entertainment that ever hit the screen with laughter wild and hilarious all the way it's a mad 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 world is everything its extravagant title suggests says the new york times a wham doodle humdinger stemwinder said the new york world telegram and sun Great Britain's Manchester Guardian applauded with exuberant, exhilarating, triumphant. Marvelous, wild, prodigious slapstick, exclaimed the New York Post. Everyone who's ever been funny is in it. Our traffic 
Before we get too far away from the trailer, we're going to have a few words from Charlie Kokoski about the trailer. Hello, this is Charlie, Steve's nephew, and today I'll be talking about the trailer for It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World. Um, It starts out with a group of men coming off an airplane to the premiere of the movie, which I thought was interesting because that means they recorded the trailer after actually releasing the movie, which isn't very typical. After that, they go into the opening premise of the film, which is a group of people who, through a synchronistic moment, are set on a rat race, so to speak, to find a lost treasure. And then after that, we see the crazy antics that play out through um, a bunch of different action scenes that were sequentially edited together that occur throughout the film. And then after that, we are shown through a narrator a bunch of, actually there's seven, seven different reviews about the movie through newspapers and magazines. Just to read a few, we have that this movie is the wildest chase comedy on record. It's a smash, has more laughs than any other comedy in the history of the screen. You can't afford to miss this, and it's wild and hilarious. Um, I I think that they use the reviews to add some kind of credibility. You know, a lot of people read these magazines at this time, and it just shows that the film, you know, has has some worth, and it gives them credibility. Um, And then I think the action scenes are appealing to a younger audience, which is important because, you know, they're, they're big contributor to to film going at the time and then after the reviews we see the the list of the star power that we have in this film you know we go through like Sid Caesar um, you know we have Spencer Tracy and people like that and they actually go through and list everyone out and I think they do that to appeal to the older audience because they those are all people that were aging out of their their careers and kind of this was their last hurrah you know some of them were still relevant for lack of a better term but others you know this was a a good way to bring them into the forefront again so i thought that was a good balance of appealing to the younger audience and the older audience um one thing i would say about the trailer 
is just like the movie. It's a little bit longer than I anticipated. Um, the typical trailer nowadays is about a minute to a minute and a half, and the trailer for this movie has a runtime of three minutes and 19 seconds, just like the movie where a, a typical comedy today would run an hour and a half to an hour and 45 minutes, whereas this movie is two hours and 40 minutes. Um, I think that's a testament maybe of the attention span and how that's changed at the time. Um, you have a more long-form comedy with with more breaks in the action. Of course, there's still a lot of action, but there's more downtime, whereas I think in movies and in trailers now, it has to be much more concise and to the point, and you you can't really draw out what you're, the message because then our attention might be lost and we might move on to something that we find more interesting. Um, and besides that, I, I think that this film appeals to somebody that obviously has a sense of humor, likes more of the slapstick comedy, um, maybe some more of the irreverent highbrow stuff that a lot of people might not pick up on. Um, when, when I think of this, I think of like Laurel and Hardy, you know, kind of the semantic humor like who's on first you know stuff like that um just funny word choice and stuff like that and just for the sake of rambling i, I would give this trailer not based on the movie i would give the trailer maybe a b plus i think that the reviews gave it credibility i from from the editing and the action shots i feel drawn in to see the movie there's um there's a lot to work with and i think it presents a pretty concise package that i would be willing to watch and one thing that i thought was interesting that charlie mentioned was it's an unusually long trailer it's also an unusually long movie I believe he said the trailer's about three minutes long. Usually trailers are about a minute and a half at most. So it's kind of a, a long trailer for a long movie. And I kind of thought that made sense, but was also a little unique. Well, exactly. Just to bounce off of that, it's a, it's a unique movie. You can't really sum it up in one minute. It, it's, it's, and Steve, I think you brought this up, how it was, it was an event, especially even on TV. And I'm sure it was, in Cinerama, when it came out in, in Cinerama theaters, like, this is an event. You need to get off your butt and get off and leave the TV at home. You need to come to the theater, bring the entire family, buy popcorn for everyone. This is going to be on a gigantic screen. Every single comedian in history is going to be in it. Like, this is an event. You can't really sum it up in one minute. You know what I mean? And I think the, the, the longer trailer, and I mean, the, the, big, the bigger epics, of the past had longer trailers. I mean, I think Ten Commandments, the first trailer for Ten Commandments was something like nine minutes long. Like, it's just like you can't sum it up in those little TV spot type type things. Um, and again, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir here. Uh, this, it was a different time of, of, uh, of um, uh, what, what's the word? Your, your, the, the audience 
Mindset. Then you're gonna have, what is it? Mindset. And then again, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir here. Audience attention spans are completely different from nowadays where you can have a, like a 10-second, YouTube, 5-second YouTube ad and get everything in. Um, but that's, that's, I mean, that's we already know that. Um, trailers back then were going to be longer than, than modern trailers. Um, I guess that also kind of speaks something of movies that are put out nowadays by some studios where it's like, we can summarize our plot in 10 seconds. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, or whether that's just the advancement of marketing since then. But I guess the movie has a straightforward plot in the beginning, but it just gets layered as the movie goes on and gets really thick at the end. Well, I think it's it's partially as you start out with the goal of we're going to go find this treasure and you give this goal to four different groups of people who interpret it in different ways and go about it in how they think is best to do it. So you get all of that layers of different perspective going into this. So while you started out with everybody has the same goal. They're all going to do it differently, but they're still going to do it. That makes sense. Now, I will say $350,000 is the amount that they're going for. And that that's a lot of money. But I don't know if that would motivate 15 people to go after it for 200 miles nowadays Inflation, like it did back then. then. Inflation. No, but if it was the same $350,000, I don't know if you would get all of them nowadays like... They, they just might give up partway through and be like, it's not worth it anymore. It's still a lot of money. Um, I know what you're saying. They, they'd probably, if they remade this film, they'd probably make it like $3.5 million or $35 million or something where it sounds like way more of an amount. Because you're right, some people might be like, ah, it's not worth all the craziness that they do. But then again, if you were the only one to get $350,000, no taxes. And not report it. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Unless you're Pike, then you got to report it. You got to report it. Everyone has to pay their taxes. That's like yeah. stealing from the government. But uh, I think maybe this is a nice segue because uh, you said that they remade it. Because in Rat Race, I think it's $2 million that's in the, the, the state or the, the case that they're after. Um, so, yeah, inflation. I mean, it's obviously inflation. But, but uh, rat, rat Race, I want to say, is like $2 million, which is ba- it's basically the same plot um if you want to segue into oh, yeah. <laughs> was someone talking about yeah well nick brown um actually did discuss about rat race and um talked about how basically it's a mad mad world caused like scavenger hunt rat race and other films like it it's part of its legacy is people want to see that road race type film so let's hear nick talk about rat race and then we'll give the summary of the film Hey folks, it's Nick Brown, author, filmmaker, and co-host of the B-Movie Cast podcast, and I'm joining the good folks on the DieCast Movie Review podcast this week to talk about the 1963 classic, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, only I'm not going to talk about It's a Mad, 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 Mad World like everybody else in it. I'm going to talk about a film from 1979 that, though it doesn't say it was based on It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, it definitely was strongly influenced 
Uh, I would say pays homage to it, maybe, maybe just rips it off in certain ways. I don't know. You be the judge. But it is the not-so-classic but definitely interesting and fun-to-watch film, Scavenger Hunt. And again, this one was from 1979, and it attempted to recreate the all-star cast magic that helped make It's a Mad, 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 Mad World so popular uh, by using an all-star cast of their own. And I'm not going to try and list that cast, but rather here's the uh, 1979 television spot for Scavenger Hunt. Ready, set, start. Scavenger Hunt. Starring Richard Benjamin, James Coco, Scatman Crothers, Ruth Gordon, Cloris Leachman, Cleavon Little, Roddy McDowell, Robert Morley, Richard Mulligan, Tony Rattle with Dirk Benedict. Also starring Willie Ames, Stephanie Pharisee, Stephen Hurst, Richard Madger. Special appearances by Meat Loaf, Pat McCormick, Vincent Price, Avery Schreiber, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Liz Torres, Carol Wayne. Scavenger Hunt. A race for $200 million. Rated PG. Okay, so... This film is, well, it is exactly what it says it is. It's a scavenger hunt. And what happens is millionaire game maker Milton Parker, uh, who obviously his name is a mix of Milton Bradley and Parker Brothers Games, uh, he dies while playing a video game of sorts with his uh, nurse. And so his family, friends, whomever is named in the will, show up for the reading of the will. The will is being read at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning, and it turns out that he has one last game to play. He's sending them on a scavenger hunt. Each one of the groups has the opportunity to be the sole inheritor of his $200 million estate. All they have to do is score the most points. How do you score points? You collect the items on the scavenger hunt list. Uh, and you can't buy them, but you can acquire them by any other means. There are five teams, just like in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, there were five families or groups that were initially involved in the chase for the money. So you've got the Parkers. Uh, that's the widowed son-in-law, Henry Motley, and his four children. Uh, we've got the servants, French cook Henri, valet Jenkins, limo driver Jackson, and French maid Babette. You've got a dim-witted taxi driver named Marvin Dummitz, uh, Parker's widowed sister, Mildred Carruthers, her attorney, Stuart Selsom, and her son, Georgie. And then you have nephews Kenny and Jeff Stevens and Mildred's stepdaughter, Lisa. And what happens is each group goes through a lot of shenanigans, interesting situations, goofy, oddball comedy, trying to gather the most of the goods that they can as they travel all over San Diego, California. Uh, this was a much lower budget film than It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, even relevant, relative to the 16-year uh, difference. I believe the budget for this film was $7 million in 1979, as opposed to more than $9 million for It's a Mad, 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 Mad World in 1963. But it's a fun little movie. Now, that said, it does not have the same magic that the original Mad, 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 Mad World had, and I think part of that has to do with the fact that it just it was a little bit lazy in its execution and although it had an extremely talented cast i think it didn't use that talent to the fullest of its potential also many of the celebrities that were in this film while they were celebrities in their own right weren't quite as big a group of celebrities as the ones that were in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Uh, also, there were technical aspects of It's a Mad, 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 Mad World that made it a much bigger production. It was much more Hollywood. This one was 
almost straight to video, if not completely straight to video. And it was released in December of 1979. Uh, it made its money back. Uh, it is notable for having cameo appearances by Meatloaf and Arnold Schwarzenegger, as well as Avery Schreiber as the zookeeper. So if you're done checking out It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, take a few minutes and check out Scavenger Hunt. And by a few, I mean 116 minutes. Uh, I would recommend fast-forwarding through some of the zoo scenes just because they're kind of boring. And, uh, you know, when the Native American has his false teeth stolen, you might want to fast-forward through those scenes, too, just for, you know, your own sensibilities, because I found it kind of hard to watch some of that at this point in my life. But anyway, check out uh, Scavenger Hunt from 1979 as part of your look at It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. And by the way, Stephen Turk is going to give me a dollar every time I say it's a mad, 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 mad world. So I'm just going to keep saying it's a mad, 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 mad world. Also, uh, when you're done checking out the podcast and when you're done checking out both films, uh, I'd appreciate it if you popped on over to authornickbrown.com. That's author, N-I-C, Brown. Uh, there's no K in my Nick. My parents were poor and couldn't afford one. What can I say? But it's authornickbrown.com. Uh, there you can check out some of the uh, books that I've written, including the newest release, which has just come out, which is the B-Movie Cookbook, the 1960s. And just so everyone knows, while I did a lot of the stuff that's related to the films that we cover in the book, all of the recipes come from my wife, Fiona, who wrote A Culinary History of Kentucky, uh, with the exception of three that were donated by the wonderful actress Beverly Washburn, who played Elizabeth in Spider Baby with Lon Chaney Jr. And we have a really cool special feature interview with Beverly in the uh, new B-Movie cookbook, and that interview also features some exclusive photos that she was kind enough to donate to us for use in the book. So please check out the B-Movie cookbook at authornickbrown.com. And thanks again for tuning in, and now we'll get back to the rest of It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. By the way, Stephen, I believe that's about $8.50 because I left out a couple of mads. Alright, till next time, folks, keep your nose in the wind and your tail to yourself. Alright, so I think like Nick brought up the scavenger hunt and gave a good summary of the film, and, and really, it just didn't have the budget that this film had and this, you're talking decades difference. And I think that's what he, as he was bringing up in his summary was really the big change in the movie was um, the amount of money to get to, to utilize. And of course the cast was different. You weren't getting a, a tremendous amount of comedians. You were getting a lot more actors of name. And so it was a different kind of draw to that film. And I mean, it's, it's only like 90 minutes long. It's not, you know, the six hours of, <laughs> it's a mad, 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 mad world. Um, it was, I want to say it's only like 85 minutes. It's a, it's a tiny little, little movie um, in comparison. Exactly. If, if I was wondering, there, there are multiple um, versions of the running time for it's a mad, 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 mad world. The original running time, the original cut was 210 minutes. Wow. Its premiere cut was 192 minutes. And then the theatrical cut was 161 minutes, which is what we saw. I'm not sure if that's the one you saw, Josh. I want to say, I think that's the one I saw as well. Um, and, and I think Criterion has, it, with the restored footage, has a 197 minute cut. So it's. Wow. So you can really see. I mean, can you imagine if you sat for the 210 
minute version. And you're, but the, here's the thing: you're watching it in cinema scope. Cinerama. Cinerama. I'm sorry. Yeah, Cinerama. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, and, and what other movie? I mean, again, you have to put yourself in the mindset of, of the audience at that time. Like, this is a gigantic event. You want to spend the whole day there? Why not? It's, Make it another hour longer. I'm here. I'm here all day. You know, it's it's, it's something to go experience. And um, yeah, I mean, but two. What did you say? Two hundred and ten minutes was was the original, or two hundred minutes was two hundred and ten minutes according to according to the all knowing Wikipedia. Now that's one heck <laughs> of a director's <laughs> yes. cut. Yeah, yeah, right. And wow, that, that is why this movie has an intermission. Mm-hmm. That's like if the a guy. Lost if the people that made Kill Bill just didn't decide to make it two movies. Yeah. Well, I will say this. Um, Josh and I one day, hopefully maybe next year, um, or during our, our second season or whatever you will look at it, we're, both Ben and McKayla told me they do not want to sit through this film. But I want to talk with you about Napoleon, the silent film, and that is what, five and a half hours, Josh? Oh, <laughs> my God. You just made my day. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, what a movie. It's but, not even a movie. That's an experience. Oh, wow. But, but I'm yeah, it's, it's, it's five and a half hours, right? I want to say, yeah, it's close to that. So that, so, yeah. so, it's a mad, 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 mad world is nothing compared to Napoleon. It's a, it's just a walk in oh, the park. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Love that movie. Wow. Yeah, cool. Anytime I'm in, you want to talk about that. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe maybe your enthusiasm will entice one of these other two, but I think th- when, they, when they heard the five and a half hour thing, it was like no mas, no mas. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, if anything, just watch the the the, the first. Um, I think it's the first twenty five minutes. First twenty five minutes are just dynamite. Um, like Napoleon, completely Day. recommend it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> that was good. That was good. We'll give you one on the chalkboard. All right. Let, let me try to summarize this film, which Ben already said cannot be done in one minute. I'm not timing myself or whatever. But basically, you have um, Smiler, who's played by the great Jimmy Durante, and um, is driving like a maniac on the road around these other vehicles. And he goes off the road. Exactly. Thank you. I was hoping one of you. Just went sailing out there. Sailing out there. Off the very well-placed ramp-like road structure. (laughs) (laughs) Just went sailing out there. And and how did he go out there? Sailing out there. Okay. Milton Berle's character, Mr. Finch, does that so many times in the beginning. It's like, he just went sailing out there. And he always does the arm motions. Which I was when I was watching the film recently, my youngest son Patrick was watching the first half hour, forty minutes with me. He watched um he's seen it before and he was watching, he's like, he keeps doing that sailing out there part with his hands and it's like it, and after a while he realized how funny it was. It was just going on and on. It's that's what can you say? All right, but nevertheless, they go down there to talk to Smiler and Smiler tells them because he knows he's dying, he was in this bad car crash. And he explains to him about there's money, 350,000 G's. It's all underneath this big W in, the, was it, Santa Rosita Park? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Santa Rosita Park. Go, it's underneath the big W. You can't miss it. You just got to go and get it. And eventually, he kicks the bucket. 
literally. <laughs> and then there the, the police show up and the detective talking to him, Norman Fell. You just gotta love it. I mean, they got, they got tons of people in here. You're, you're gonna watch, and if you know your film, TV history, you'll be seeing characters. I mean, actors playing different characters that you're going to know real well. He comes down, talks to them. They're all clam. They're not going to sing anything. They leave, and they're all watching each other, and eventually they pull over on the side of the road to discuss how they're going to break up the shares, which leads in this crazy discussion about, oh, I'm a person in a vehicle, and I was one of the ones that went down there, so I get three shares, and none of them are happy with it. But they all agree on one thing, that Ethel Merman's character um, – <laughs> It, when, I love it when Buddy Hackett's character, Benji, says this. It's like, it's every man for himself. And he says, except for you, lady, I hope you drop dead. And then Jonathan Winter's <laughs> characters, I think we all agree on that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was just set up so well. And it said, he says it so slyly that when Patrick was watching that part of me, he goes, um, I didn't catch that part before. And he was just smiling because there's it's, when you rewatch this, you're going to catch different things that you didn't see before. And that's when all heck breaks loose. It's, it's basically a road picture now where they're all trying to get to the park first in a whole bunch of different ways. Some taking a plane that really should not be flying anymore. An old, <laughs> old crop duster type plane. Um, other ones that we talked about with like Mickey Rooney and Buddy Hackett's characters, you know, basically get a guy with a more modern plane. The rest of them are driving and all heck breaks loose. Other characters come into play and they learn about it. You know, that's when you get Terry Thomas's character, who's the, the Lieutenant Colonel Hawthorne. Mm-hmm. And um, I, Ethel Merman's character, um, I love it. You know, Mrs. Marcus goes to him, what language are you speaking? You, what, what are you talking about? You have an accent or whatever. And, are you from Yale? And he's like, I'm English. Harvard. That's not a Harvard. Yeah, Har- Harvard. Like, are you yeah. from Harvard? And Harvard, he goes, no, I'm from, you know, it's English. And she goes, that's not any English I know. Speak, you know, it was just funny how she's just picking on everybody. It's sounds so foreign. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you just had to love the the way she went into this role. I mean, it's, as Ben said, it is one of the most memorable roles. And you you just got to love her. You love to hate her, which makes it even better. I mean, there's, I don't don't think there's anything really good that she does in this film, except the right people and insult people and the whole thing the best thing she does in the whole film is slip on the darn banana peel <laughs> that's like that's the most joy she's brought to people in the whole film that is so true that is so true <laughs> although um, they might they might also kick the bucket after that but well you know but nevertheless they um captain Culpepper is played by spencer tracy and they've been following smiler's you know, what he's been up to. So the different detectives are content, constantly in contact with him, letting them know that these people must know where the treasure is. No, not the treasure, but the money is. And it was 15 years ago when Smiler stole money from what is it, a tuna, a factory. tuna factory. Yes, a tuna factory. Yeah. Now, what kind of tuna factory in 1963 has $350,000? A corrupt tuna factory. In California. <laughs> like... In the desert part of California. Wait a minute. That's what bothers you? <laughs> like, also, who robs tuna factories? Well, S- Smiler did. I mean, it's obvious. Come on, weren't you paying attention to the plot? But that is what bothers you <laughs> about this That's whole film? That's what bothers me. They could have just said a bank, and I would have been like, okay. I guess it's funny that it's a tuna factory, though. 
that's why it's a tuna factory. It's, it's a comedy. <laughs> why not a tuna factory? Because it's it's impractical. <laughs> I exactly. guess that's why that's why it's funny, but it's also. Milton Burrow's character, Mr. Finch, is trying running a seaweed company that's trying to make seaweed. Edible seaweed. A failing, edible edible seaweed. Edible, a failing edible seaweed company. Yeah. Well, you know. But whatever the case, um, they continue on. Hijinks ensue. <laughs> Other people get in and out of the different picture, which we'll talk about as we go, as we talked about some already. And they finally get to the, the place, and they finally discover the big W, and they get the money. But Captain Culpepper is there. And he basically um, collects the money because he's going through some problems of his own with his wife and his daughter. And then he found that he's not going to get his pension. So he's just picturing that they're real close to Mexico. And $350,000 in 1963 goes a long way, especially in Mexico. You know, so he's, he's picturing he's going to get this big payday. Unbeknownst to Captain Culpepper, he was the chief actually was going to get him the money, like get the pension for him. But Captain Culpepper does not hear the call. And they all realize when Captain Culpepper doesn't turn to the station that he's going the other way and they chase him, which leads them into, I guess, a condemned building yeah. um, and, and that kind of stuff. And they chase him up the stairs and they eventually get on a fire escape and eventually get on a fire ladder and it doesn't go well for him. They don't listen to the one guy telling them one at a time. They all jump on and then they all have a, a big fall. They end up in the hospital all under arrest. And that's when Ethel Merman's character at the very end of the movie, after Spencer Tracy's character says, I'll never smile again. Maybe in 10, 20 years, I'll find something to smile about again. And then Benji throws a banana peel on the floor and in marches Mrs. Marcus. And down she goes. And she starts to berate them. And then, waboom, she has fallen. And you got to understand, everybody, that all these people are in full body cast practically. I mean, they're all, I mean, all the guys are all messed up and they're all laughing hysterically. And it's just, and then finally Captain Culpepper smiles and laughs and that's how it ends. It ends with his laugh. Cause it's a mad, 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 mad world. They're all gone mad. And why greed money avarice drove them all to the edge. I left out parts, but I mean, you, know, you can't, you can't summarize that whole film. I mean, it's it's hard to summarize funny things. One thing I wanted to add, these two cab drivers just get dragged <laughs> right into it. Like, they don't really know what's going on. And they're just joining in. Yeah. All of a sudden, it's like, Tom and the other cab driver whose name I forgot are like, yo, we're in. Let's try and get this money from this police officer we just met while we drive all these crazy people around. And in the end, they're there with them in full body casts. It's like they just popped in. Well, you know those aren't just any two cab drivers in there. Mm-hmm. Now, who's one of them, Ben? Peter Ooh. Falk. Yep. Pre-Columbo. And the other one is Eddie Anderson. Who was also known for playing Rochester with Jack Benny, if I remember correctly. I'm going from memory. I'm not looking it up in the notes because I'm holding my little dog. <laughs> but um, but those those two guys, because he just has that voice, you know, that that's that's mm-hmm. and his timing's great. Peter Falk's timing's great, and they're like 
they're up to something. I heard him saying something about it being under a big W and everybody's running around Santa Rosita Park trying to hide from each other and eventually they get together. It's, it's I don't know. It, listeners, you got to watch this film because it is just sheer madness. Other <laughs> madness is going on. Uh, the cutscenes that start happening there, it almost feels like what they used to do in the Monty Python movies where it's like, they're all doing something at the same time, and then it cuts to another person, and then it cuts to another person, and then it cuts back. And it's just like everybody's going crazy. It's almost like a live-action Scooby-Doo scene. It is a live-action yeah. Scooby-Doo scene. Even that, that, I love, I think my favorite shot in the whole movie is the camera pointing right up from under the, the hole, and you see all of their heads, and that's a complete mm-hmm. cartoon. I mean, it reminds me of Scooby-Doo when they all lean over the wall, and you see through the whole line of their heads. It's basically that, just in a, in a oh, and just, just, I mean, film geek moment, just to have all of those people in one singular shot that's just so, oh, for me, it's just like cotton candy. Like, what a beautiful shot, and you got all of them in the same time. Yeah. Sorry. Movie geek moment over. Uh, <laughs> Continue. It's, it's like what the trailer says. It's, well, it's not everyone who was ever funny, but it's a heck of a lot of people that were really funny in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Well, 60s, 50s, 40s, 30s, 30s I mean, pretty yeah. much... Pretty much if they were a big comedian in film, TV, on stage, they appeared somewhere or were almost involved in the film. You can't, I mean, you can't have everybody. And some of them weren't in there as Rich and Jeff talked about because they wanted too much money, you know, for their cameo appearance or whatever, or or like some of them couldn't get out of their contract to do it or the studios wouldn't let them do it and so on. So it could have been even bigger or other people might've been replaced, but. I mean, it's just so nice. But you brought up about the cinematography, and an Ernest Laszlo, Laszlo did an awesome job. And Stanley Kramer, of course, wanting that full experience, you know, where you can see everything. And um, Rod Barnett, who uh, does the podcast The Bloody Pit, wants to talk about that because he's, he's going to talk a little bit about how that the widescreen helps and hinders the humor of the film. Hello, I'm Rod Barnett. I am the co-host of the Nashy Cast and the uh, often co-host of the Bloody Pit podcast as well. Now, usually the podcasts I do focus on horror movies and strange action films and just bizarre cinema of every type, which makes me one of the perfect people to talk about It's a Mad, 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 Mad World from 1963. Because although it's not a horror film, It could be classified that way from the right angle. But that's not why I'm here to talk to you today. That's a subject for another time. We're here to talk about the fact that this movie, a comedy, is very strange in that regard. If brevity is the soul of wit, then it would be very easy to charge that it's a mad, 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 mad world is witless. Because, let's be honest, even the shortest versions of this film are damned long. Possibly far too long? I mean, even the shortest cut of this movie that's ever been viewable is just shy of three hours in length. For fans of this movie, super fans of this movie, its length is part of its joy because they find everything within it, to one degree or another, funny. But it is my argument that the use of its length 
mirrors almost everything in the film that is both beloved and derided about this movie. Because director Stanley Kramer was making what he considered to be an epic comedy, not only was it going to be very long and encompass dozens of characters, he wanted to make sure that visually that form followed function. So this was going to be shot very widescreen. This thing was going to be big in every way he could make it. But when crafting a comedy, especially a comedy that is employing incredibly talented comedic actors, one of the things that makes the humor work, say of a well-turned piece of dialogue or a, or a strange situation in which people are having to react, is that we can actually pay attention to the people and their faces. When you're shooting a very wide image, one of the problems you get into, classically, is that it's very difficult to create a close-up. It's possible. It can be done. Check out any John Carpenter film if you want to see how it can be done well. Check out any Sergio Leone film to see how it can be done well. But part of the ability of a comedic actor to get across the funny is to be able to see the expressions on their face is to be able to see the reactions to the humorous moments that they are reacting to. And there are many points within It's a Mad, 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 Mad World where the humor, at least to my taste, is somewhat muted because we can't get a good look at the reaction shots. Now, of course, to a large degree, some of this goes away if you ever get the chance to see this movie on the big screen. If you can see the movie up on a giant screen, 40 or 50 feet high, you get a better sense of what Stanley Kramer was probably aiming for, which is you can actually see more of the nuance. And yes, believe it or not, in a film this broad, there's plenty of comedic nuance if you pay attention. But of course, that's not how most people nowadays, and let's be honest, for the past 50 years, have been able to see this movie. Most people have to see this movie on home video, on a television screen. So the opportunity to pay attention to the nuance of the comedic reactions and the comedic facial expressions and just the physicality writ small, not large, is difficult. If you pay attention, one of the things you'll notice about the framing of shots in the movie is that there are no single-face close-ups. There are two shots, three shots, and then multiple actor shots. Now, in the multiple actor shots, on a television screen, it becomes difficult to actually get a sense of the humor and how well it's working. Because, let's be honest, there's a lot of really funny dialogue in this movie, and it's being delivered brilliantly by a cast of amazing character actors. But there are times when being able to see too much means that a nice, funny bit slides by and isn't nearly as effective as it could be. One way it does work effectively in a well-constructed comedic moment is near the beginning when the conspirators are discussing how to divvy up the cash. And the only thing that the men seem to be able to agree on is that uh, the old bag needs to shut her mouth. The moment when it just becomes hilarious to the point of impossible to ignore is when Jonathan Winters expresses that we all agree on the old bag needs to shut up. The image is tight on just a few of the characters and Winters delivering the line 
is in the framing right next to Ethel Merman, who is being described in this way. So we get the joy of his expert delivery of that line, the amusing way in which the scene has built to him delivering that line, and her outraged reaction. But say she had been over to the far right of the image, our focus at the time is on Winters delivering the line and not her reaction. The funniest part of the scene is the one-two punch of him delivering the line that has now become a repetitive joke within the scene and her reaction to it. Because, of course, she's peeved. So I would say that's a good example of it working effectively because of the framing. Even though it's still very wide, it works. But at the same time, there are multiple instances throughout the film where the humor, the comedy, gets muted because there's too much image. I understand the desire to be big, and of course everything in this movie is big, from the, the underlying thesis of greed being the most hideous thing that can motivate a human being. But at the same time, the desire to be big sometimes undermines the humor of the situation. For me, the funniest moments in this movie are not the big moments. They're the smaller moments when it's just a couple of characters talking, arguing, and possibly even fighting. The scene with Milton Berle and Terry Thomas arguing over the various merits of the United States versus Britain is great. It's shot in widescreen. Both characters are on screen at the same time. We get to see every response between the two comedic actors, and it's hilarious. But when it's too big, when there are too many characters on screen, when things are too small, because remember, unfortunately, most of us are not going to ever get to see this on the big screen, the humor gets muted. And that is unfortunate, because overall, I really enjoy this movie. But it was made at a time when I don't think anybody ever thought that the way people were going to be seeing something this big was on something so small. Well, I could go on about this for another 10 minutes, but I'll just sign off. Thank you once again. This is Rod Barnett of the Nashi Cast and the Bloody Pit, and I thank you for this opportunity. So, Josh, being, being the filmmaker, what did you think about the um, Rod's analysis about how it like, helped in some scenes, but it hurt in others because... Uh, the comedians not being able to, um, for the, the audience not being able to see the little nuances in their face because there wasn't as many facial reactions as there normally would be in comedies that we see nowadays. Yeah, well, I, I it, it's such a, be- I mean, again, a massive film on this gigantic screen. You can't really do close-ups. I mean, comedy is all in, in reactions. I mean. 90% of comedy is, is reaction. You, you see, you know, Ethel Merman fall on the, slip on the banana, we cut to, uh, um, I just blanked on his name. What's his, our, our Culpepper. Spencer, um, Spencer Tracy, thank you. I was going to say Stanley Kubrick. Uh, <laughs> That's a totally um, different film. <laughs> yeah, totally different, sorry. Um, <laughs> but you, you, he, he reacts to that. So you can't really, I mean, on a screen that is a billboard size and it's right in your face, as an audience in 1963 and you're seeing that you can't really go in for those close-ups where you see that they're tiny little reactions. Um, one of the, 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 the funniest, another funny, I mean, the whole movie is filled with funny moments, but one of the funniest moments for me is they're, they're digging in, in the park and there's just this quiet shot, very 
simple shot of Culpepper and Buddy Hackett, and Buddy Hackett just turns to him, and it's just like they don't say anything; they just look at each other and smile. And it, that again just cracks me up because it's, it's so subtle, and and I guess that that would be an example of, of using close-ups. But again, they're not full close-ups; that they're, they're a bit drawn back. Um, so yeah, I think maybe uh, more of that throughout the film, getting just little simple reactions might have added more humor, if that, that makes sense. But I mean, again, with such a massive thing, you 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 have to, you have to choose your battle. You got to show the car, you know, going over the cliff. You got to show the car crash. You got to show the plane and the long shot. You can't really take the time to, I mean, could you really take any more time in a, you know, 210 <laughs> minute film that you get those nice close-ups? Um, so yeah, I agree with him on that. It's, it's, you've got to choose your battles as a cinematographer. You want the massive scope and especially in, in Cinerama, like I said. Um, but uh, I, I see where he's coming from. Um, well, just remember, we saw the 161-minute version. None of us ever saw the 210-minute version. So who knows? <laughs> those those scenes could have been in there um, to show. And also, none of us are seeing it the way it was intended to be seen. And and Because and, we're all watching it on TVs. And even if you have a nice big screen TV, that's nowhere near the way this, this oh, movie yeah. was meant to be seen. Yeah. I mean, you, you watch it on your, your big TV and you see that the, the screen is just so thin <laughs> for the Cinerama format. Um, so I, I get where he's coming from, like some, some close-ups, but again, the, the format, you can't really do it in that uh, format. Now, one of the other things was there are, there are like really a couple scenes where they're in close enough quarters that you can see the reactions pretty well. Like uh, when Buddy Hackett and Mickey Rooney are up in the airplane, you get a lot more reactions. And that's probably why it's one of the more humorous scenes or you can get more humor from it, especially from Buddy Hackett. Because his face, his facial expressions are hilarious throughout that whole part. And then uh, in the basement, when Melville Crump and Monica Crump... uh, Eddie Adams and Sid Caesar. Caesar in opposite order um, are stuck in the basement. You get more of their facial reactions and it adds to the, not necessarily, well, there are humorous parts in those scenes, but it also adds to the tension in that scene. Like when they're about to set off the dynamite and they're both kind of sweating a little bit, like maybe we're going to die right now. <laughs> And then the fireworks go off, and then they both dive under this thing, and Melville's basically crying into her lap. And <laughs> that's like a humorous thing where you can see the fireworks, but you can also see that reaction. And I think you couldn't get that if you just went to a close-up, and that scene might not have worked as well. So I think I, yeah, can, kinda, it- I can see why they did it the way they did it. They just kind of went for it throughout the whole film without getting the true close-ups really until that last scene with Spencer Tracy, where it really is more of like a true close-up showing just him finally breaking down and laughing and cracking up. One thing I want to tie in, Josh, when you talked about the reactions when they're all digging, I love the reactions also like you talked about with from Spencer Tracy and Buddy Hackett, but I also liked how he took the time to show all the other people and you could see the greed, the avarice in each of their faces as – they're digging it. And I love Dorothy Provine's 
Dr. Previn's character, you know, her reaction as Mrs. Finch, and she's looking at all of them, especially her husband, who's like, dig. Yeah, dig. yeah. And faster. she's looking at him with disgust. Faster. faster. Yes, yeah, faster. Yeah, yeah, faster. yeah. yeah. And she's the only one. I, I always felt sorry for her character because she really should not have been put in jail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she was just along for yeah, the she ride. Got, yeah. She, um, yeah. But it's a, it's a mad, 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 mad world. So uh, she gets swept up in the tide of madness. It's almost like if you had done this as a movie nowadays, she probably would have ended up being the point of view character because she's the one the audience can relate to the most. And then it's just the craziness yes. happening around her. Yes, that, that's, uh, I mean, this could go off on, on a tangent. If I could change, I mean, not so much change anything, but if I could, could critique anything, I wish there was more of that you tapped into it then, of a, more of a character that we could not so much sympathize with, but we, like the audience surrogate character. I mean, I guess you could kind of say that we're all, we, we, we choose who we, we would be in this situation. Um, but there isn't really one that we can sympathize with, except her, I guess, towards the end, because you feel bad for her. But um, <clears throat> I don't know. That's, that's, uh, and again, then you can't really do that in this gigantic, you know, these 25 different storylines going on at the same time. But I thought of that. I was like, I kind of wish there was there was one um, normal character, but that would kind of defeat the purpose of doing a mad thing. Anyway, I thought of that. I, I wanted to bring that up. Yeah, um, I don't I know if you agree or disagree. I, I agree with you, and I think you kind of you almost get it with Pike, where he's almost yeah. just like your everyday guy, and then mm-hmm. you get a little more of it with Monica Crump, or not Monica Crump, but uh, Emmeline Marcus Finch, uh, with Dorothy Provine's character, Provine's character, but you don't get it all the way, be- partly because her mom is so crazy, yeah. and her husband is such a heel. It's like, yeah, she doesn't get as many moments where you can see she's just a regular person versus yes. you get a little bit more of Pike just being kind of a regular guy. And it's like you, you almost have that person, but they're just not in enough of the movie to have that person that you relate to all the time. Yeah. And, and the more I think about it, the more I was like, really, do you want, you know, of all the characters going on, you want one dull. Do you really want that? As, I mean, I'm looking at it as a filmmaking thing. Like that's, that's kind of like the, the dull character. Do you really want that? So, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an interesting thought, um, to, to think about, but, um, again, everything, everyone is so wacky and so crazy. You can't really <laughs> tone them down. That kind of defeats the purpose of the whole thing. Yeah, as as they, as they say in Spinal Tap, I mean, Stanley Kramer turned this movie up to 11, maybe 12. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 13. Uh. <laughs> yeah, because you just got, I mean, that, but that's part of the thing as it gets crazier and crazier as you go along. And, and, and I agree, she's like the only normal person. And you have that scene where she discovers the W first and as she's mm-hmm. drinking a drink mm-hmm. at the water fountain and she's talking to Captain Culpepper who comes up to her. Um, Cause he realizes she knows something. He sees the reaction and they're talking and she started to have her little dream about, Oh, if I could just have the money, I would get away from all of them and start a convent or something. It was really bizarre. She said, yeah, she yeah, said, Do yeah. you think that would be enough money for me to join a convent? And yeah, yeah. you could literally see Spencer Tracy's character going like, 
you know nothing? <laughs> like, what the heck? Yeah. <laughs> Just looking at her like, you don't know what a convent is, do you? <laughs> it was a bizarre thing. I was, I was, that's when you that's when you realize it's like, what? <laughs> what? Yeah. It was definitely like this I went one. To, to tap right back into to cinematography right quick. I, I also love the, the shot of the W and Jonathan Winters comes right into the <laughs> foreground, turns around, and he's like, there it is! And everyone in the background starts going in. Oh, that's a lo- lovely shot. Um, yeah. Because well, yeah. all they've all been running around and in and through this. Mm-hmm. And then you just see him go through it the one time, and then you see him slow down. And you see the realization, yeah. and he's like, "There it is." There, yeah, yeah. Well, and his hands are up, just like it's the W. It's yeah. oh, good stuff. And we, as the audience, are, are are made aware of the W earlier in the scene, um, as they were running around. And they even, I mean, even they even show, and you go, "Ah," you know, typing the music, so everybody knows this is the W. In case you didn't know, I uh, think they even they even they even sing the W. I think the, aren't they singing <laughs> that in the choir? Oh, this is, yeah. <laughs> but I love it how you have the two cabbies stick their heads in. You can still see the full W, and because they, and the way they set it up, and they're both like, yeah, I heard it's under a big W. Yeah, I wonder where it oh, is. Yeah, and, yeah. and the whole time, it's like right there. <laughs> All they got to do is turn their heads, and they'll see. It's, it's like, you know, can't see the forest through the trees type of atmosphere going on with the yeah. W. Mm-hmm. But I do love it that it's Jonathan Winter's character that does discover it as he's trying to take out Phil Silver's character. Yeah. <laughs> Also, this is going to be way back in the movie, but I love at the beginning how they're all just driving around thinking, what's the W? Is it a windmill? And then yes. uh, Jonathan Winter's character is going, well, which? <laughs> what? What I need to do is figure out what the W is. He's just like yeah. going on. And he's like, it's a witch. Yeah, because he said work. He said work. He said, "What do I got to work on? I got to work on what this W is." And yeah. but I love it yeah, how yeah, the, yeah. the editing and the dialogue as you go from car to car in 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 order of the, the way they're driving, and it picks up a slightly different way of going about it from what the other ones yeah. did before. I was I thought, and they did that a few times, um, and as mm-hmm. they're doing that that part of the scene, and I was just like, oh, it's just it's just marvelous how the editor and Stanley Kramer and the, and the and the story. You know, the writing was all there. It was just perfect, you know, with that boom, 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 building up to add that humor. I, I'd be interested to read the actual script. I mean, I wonder how much watching it, I was like, I wonder how much each comedian, if they added anything, if they, they, they you know, improvised a line, if Jonathan Winters, you know, came up with a certain line. I, I would be interested to, to see how much was actually, you know, on paper to say this, to say the which lines do this, um, That'd be an interesting because I mean you have you have that that group of, of comedians who've had you know years of experience on stage on the radio and stuff they they had to have just been funny by themselves you know and you add the script like what 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 spin did they take on it I, I'd be interested to, to see if that even exists a, a script of this. Well, I heard there was two scripts. There was the um, script for the stunts and all the things going on, and then there was the script for the actors. So oh really? Yeah. <laughs> And I think Jonathan Winters, and one of the things I saw on YouTube, he was talking about the movie. I think he said that he never changed anything in the script. He stayed to the script. And, he wow, th- and I okay. think that they all did. So, um, I mean, who knows? There might have been an ad lib or two there or something he might have yeah, talked yeah. To, to, to Stanley Kramer about. But, I mean, for Jonathan Winters, this was his first film. So, I think 
<laughs> I don't think he was going to go and it's like, oh, I think we should do this or that, you know. Oh, of and, course, yeah, yeah. But I can see Milton Burrow or Sid Caesar with all their years on television, you know, with the show of shows and Mr. Television, Milton Burrow himself. I mean, you know, I could see them maybe wanting to say, could we try this or that? And I'm sure they all worked at the timing together. Yeah. No, I could see I could see Spencer Tracy sticking to exactly what the script says, but delivering it in like two million different ways until Stanley Kramer told him to stop and picked one. Yeah. <laughs> and this isn't Stanley Kubrick now, this is Stanley Kramer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and with Spencer Tracy, I mean I don't th- I think we saw it in inherit and we talked we, and I talked glowingly about it. I think we all except maybe one talked glowingly about Spencer <laughs> Tracy in, in, in the prior film, but it's, um, he just brings such great acting ability to act because he's the non comedian in the group, but it also goes to show you he can, I mean, as he's done in many times before, lots of great comedies, Adam's rib and things like that, you know, the screwball comedies and um, his timing is impeccable, you know, with, with the like, like, and his facial expressions. Yeah, like, like I said, that, that one shot of him and, and Buddy Hackett while they're digging up, it's just them looking at each other and smiling. Why? That, that, that takes the real, you know, talent just, just not to do anything, to not be funny and have it be funny. That that takes a certain type of talent. Oh, this is, I'm cracking up just, just thinking about it. And it's just them looking at each other and smiling. It's just... Now, one thing that I liked a lot in the film was all the voice work where people are literally, like, phoning in. And one thing I kind of want to know is could the actors really hear what they were saying or were they just pretending to hear it and going based on what the script said? Like when uh, Spencer Tracy's character is listening to his wife and his daughter talking at the same time, shouting in the phone to Billy Sue, listen to your mom, Billy Sue. And the mom's like going, can you hear me? And they're just like shouting at each other. And then he's just sitting there like, slowly going into some sort of catatonic state and you kind of like you see the color draining out of his face i was wondering if he could hear all of that hear those two people delivering their lines extremely well and having that emotion or whether he was just doing that on his own going through that whole progression with no one else there except maybe the director giving him some sort of motivation like cues of when to do what based on how the recordings worked. I think most of the time, Ben, they, they, they don't hear anything, but there are sometimes um, where they'll actually, I think it was in a, a Rob Reiner film when Harry met Sally, there was a scene where um, Sally and Harry are talking to their best friends and those two are in a bed, but they each have separate phones and they actually set it up so they could all hear each other and they were all doing it in one take because Rob Reiner wanted it that way. And it took them 60 takes to get the one take because (laughs) everybody, because somebody would mess up a line or here or whatever. And I think that's why most of the time uh, it's not done because if you have somebody screw it up and, and Spencer Tracy was a lot older and he was in poor health during these last couple of films. And so he only had a limited amount of hours that he would be on the stage. So I can imagine that they, and and Spencer Tracy, I, I really think, would not need it. It's he's just such a great actor. But oh, I can yeah, see, yeah. but it would, but it is nice if they could probably hear. Maybe somebody was throwing him the lines off stage. 
Yeah, well, my, my first uh, instinct is that they have someone off screen, if it's the actor that actually plays it or just a stagehand. So they could just read it so we get the timing of, of what it is so he can, you know, talk back or if he says, oh, you know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's such pros. All of them are such pros. It's just uh, it's like there's a whiny, you know, wife is on the phone, whiny daughter's on the phone. Just just react like they're they're talking. And I mean, it's it's the perfect reaction. You can put any any audio over that. Um, but that's a good question. I wonder if there's, there, I'm sure there's a commentary on the Criterion Blu-ray or whatever DVD that's out. I'm sure that they might mention if, if they might answer your questions then. Yeah. Um, but that's a good question. Huh? And there's probably some historian that that really researched this film. Well, you know, as Josh knows, and I, and I know we've met a monster bash different various film historians that really go into detail with certain films and they know anything that can be found out about that film, you know? And uh, so there's probably somebody with it's the same film that is, we just have to find. And I'm sure they can answer that question. And just the, they have so much voice acting incorporated into a film in 1963. Like now phones are a lot more accessible Back then, it was like you had your wired-in house phone or you had the radio, and that was basically it. There's not, like, cell phones and TV commercials running all the time on different screens. They incorporated all of these phone calls and voices in pretty unique ways to bring even more actors and actresses into the film. And I thought that was kind of unique how they did it with the limited technology that they had and were able to do it effectively where it still communicates the plot or the comedy that's going on and helps make the scene, especially in that the Spencer Tracy scene we just talked about where most of the dialogue in the scene has nothing to do with Spencer Tracy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this film with cell phones is a completely different movie. I can't even imagine. I mean, that that just completely rewrites itself if everyone had cell phones. Um, I mean, the, the whole subplot with Dick Sean and, and, and Mother and Ethel Merman, I mean, the fact that she, he won't answer his phone, she was like texting him. That's a completely different <laughs> a different movie. Um, but yeah, good, good point, good point. Yeah, and one of the things I really enjoyed about the movie was the music you know, by Ernest Gold and um, Reber Clark is going to talk about the music. And, um, and, oh, yeah. and, and you know, Reber Clark as the composer of what, um, what film, Josh? Uh, it's not important. <laughs> it wasn't that good. <laughs> House of the Gorgon. He, he did. And he's also doing the music for my cowgirls versus pterodactyls and Saturnalia. And um, hopefully, and Mantipus he's doing all the, so he'll be hopefully by the end of this year, we'll have four, original Reber Clark scores. So I'm interested to hear what he says about this. And now we're going to listen to Reber Clark. Hi, this is Reber Clark. Today we're going to talk about the composer for It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, Mr. Ernest Gold. So many composers are one-trick ponies these days. 
probably because we have become so product and brand oriented that to deviate from a successful style, a successful formula, means producers have to take a chance on the profitability of the project and anything that weakens those financial possibilities make them very nervous. Gold seemed in this picture to be able to do anything, from the banjo music of the black couple moving to California to huge orchestral riffs and romantic sweeps, action cues, hokey chase scenes, peril, drama. What a smorgasbord of music he had to cover in this film. However, there was a music department for Mad World of 15 people. Ernest Gold was the conductor, uh, uncredited. He was also a musician in the dance sequence, uncredited. He composed some of the songs, but uh, Mac David was the lyricist for some of the songs. Art Dunham was a music editor. What a music editor does is write down the timings, where the cues go, and how long they are, and gives those timings to the composer so he can map out where the cues go. Robert Helfer was a music coordinator, and uh, in the film and television industries, music coordinators work closely with music editors, composers, and music supervisors to create and deliver cue sheets, ensuring that the film's music royalties are distributed correctly. They might also negotiate and acquire synchronization rights for the film's music. These cue sheets are very important money-wise for a composer. It's what television producers and other broadcast producers use to submit to BMI, Broadcast Music Incorporated, ASCAP, the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, and other performing rights organizations, so that for each playing of the composer's music, he can get some money. There was also a team of orchestrators working on the Mad, Mad World project. Many times a composer has to write music so fast he cannot take the time to orchestrate it himself, which is to make all the parts for the orchestra to play. The team of orchestrators for Mad Mad World were Jack Hayes, and all these guys are uncredited. Uh, Jack Hayes also uh, was on the movie The Natural. I don't know if you remember that one. That's a great movie. Uh, other orchestrators were Peter Jonah Korn, Edward B. Powell, Leo Shukin, Albert Woodbury, Many composers indicate what instruments they want. Bernard Herrmann, Max Steiner indicated on their sketches what um, instruments were to play, what lines. But many times the composer just hands a piano sketch over to the orchestrators and they come up with the orchestra uh, score and then copy out all the parts. And back then there was no computer. It was all done by hand. I thank the printer every time I, I hit it and my parts are printed out. Um, additional musicians were Ethmer Roten, who played flute. The Shirelles did some uh, did singers during the dance sequence. Robert Bain is a uh, guitar player in the background, and the Four Mads was a, a dance sequence. William Britton was the music recording engineer, and all of these were uncredited. The Los Angeles Philharmonic recorded the music, and Gold was conducting. 
Every musical theater trope imaginable, as well as vaudeville and burlesque, were used in this movie. It, the, his writing range was just astounding. Uh, for example, the bugle call when they flee into the bathrooms at the garage that'll be destroyed is Call to the Colors, which is hilarious. And previous to Mad World, Gold scored On the Beach for Stanley Kramer. And that was his connection for Mad Mad World. Kramer heard his stuff on On the Beach and decided to ask him to do this one. Most notably, Ernest Gold is known for scoring Exodus. He was able to watch the filming of Exodus, which is unusual for a composer. Usually the composer waits until everything is done and then can view the finished project as an audience member and writes to those scenes. So observing the movie while it's being made was can be a curse, can be a, uh, can be a boon. Uh, it's not, nobody has said whether it was good for him or not. Anyway, Exodus uh, was fantastic. Gold spent time in Israel writing the score. It won Academy Award for Best Score and a Grammy for Best Soundtrack. Ernest Gold admired Max Steiner, whose life was similar. Born in Vienna, went through the Anschluss, which is, or the, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Anschluss, which was the annexation of Austria by Germany. He was in music school, came to America, uh, did theater in New York for a long time, and then moved to Hollywood. Stephen C. Smith has done a new book called Music by Max Steiner, which recounts his entire life. It's fantastic. And his Bernard Herrmann book, A Heart at Fire Center, is definitive. It was surprising to me to find out that Ernest Gold was married to soprano Marnie Nixon, who dubbed singing uncredited for Deborah Carr in The King and I, for Natalie Wood in West Side Story, and for Audrey Hepburn in My Fair Lady. That's amazing to me. Ernest Gold was the first composer to have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He was born in 1921 and died in 1990. For more information on Ernest Gold, look him up on Wikipedia. But for now, just enjoy his music for It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. It's fantastic. Thanks for listening. Well, basically, I like how he gave us like a, a lot about Ernest Gould's history, you know, going from a, a lot of his different films, um, besides It's a Mad, 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 Mad World and Exodus and stuff like that. He talks about those different works that he's done and um, how that led up. And I thought it was an interesting fit and um, how he talks about how the music. I've never heard any kind of music like this in any comedy before. It's just, just listening to the music almost puts a smile on your face. When you hear the orchestra parts, it's just like, it's almost like, like a, a merry-go-round. It's, it's like a, that's what I immediately think of, you know, a fun fair or a circus, especially when, when the, they're on the, the ladder and they're just going around and the, 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 the screams from the, the people that are watching, it almost sounds like a roller coaster. Like, da, 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 da. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a 
smile-inducing score. To sum up what you said, Steve, to bounce off what you said. Yeah, and of course, we all love that. Op- we all love the song, which which you now you yeah. is, is going to be in your head for another week. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just got it out. I just got it out. It could always be worse, as Ben said. There's, yeah. there's other yes. songs that you know once they're in, they're in for a long time. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't mind. I don't, I don't mind because I like the I love the music, and um, I mean, if only if only we had Derek M. Cook talking about the music, you know, from Monster Kid Radio. He just loves the music and uh, that kind of stuff. Yep. So, what else do we want to talk about? Do we want to go into? We've kind of gone over the cast and a lot of what we like about the movie. Do we want to throw in a couple things we might change or? Before we get into might change, um, Josh, as you know, when you go when you go to the movie theaters, when you walk into the theater, the, the Cineplex, whatever, what do you see on the walls? Uh, movie posters. Movie posters. And they're designed to catch the eye and to make people want to go see that film. And nowadays, a lot of those um, posters are on the DVD artwork. So when people are going, I remember when I went to like Blockbuster in the years ago, you would see as you're looking through the thousands and thousands of DVDs or VHSs, you know, back in the day, you know, you, you, the cover art, which is basically a lot of times the poster art put on there would catch your eye. And that would be like, this is something I got to see. This is something that, you know, I got to, I'm going to watch or, 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 or if it's a book, you know, they say you can never judge a book by a cover, but there's many books that are purchased because of their covers. And Alistair Hughes, who is, an awesome designer, you know, does those infographics and things like that. He did um, info, um, horror, info, info, info gothic, the unofficial guide to hammer horror. Um, is going to talk about Jack yes, Davis's poster yes. art, which is just amazing. Hello, I'm Alistair Hughes. I'm an illustrator and writer, and I've chosen to talk about the skill, wit, and dynamism of the art of Jack Davis. This legendary illustrator and cartoonist is rightfully synonymous with Mad Magazine, but for me the name Jack Davis is more likely to conjure gruesome images from the early EC horror comics, or exquisite personality caricatures for Time Magazine and the TV Guide. And most of all, his ebullient film posters from the 1960s and 70s, including the art which he produced to promote It's a Mad Mad, Mad Mad World. And there is a lot of it. Creating promotional artwork for this film in 1963 was not only, in Davis's own opinion, a turning point in his career, but also provided him with one of his very final commissions 50 years later. Davis produced two cinema posters in 1963 for It's a Mad Mad, Mad Mad World's original release, one in portrait and one in landscape format. The first features a large globe, with the film's enormous cast breaking out of it, mostly only heads, shoulders and arms, all groping towards a leather bag full of money at the bottom of the image. Needless to say, every likeness is perfect, with expressions somehow emoting within the specific context of the illustration, not obviously drawn from static photo references, as many artists clearly do. But it's the second version which is probably the best known. In this, the cast have broken free of the globe 
and a huge mob composed of seemingly every single character and vehicle in the film sweeps in a frenetic curve towards the right edge of the sheet. It is magnificent and throbs with anarchic energy, perfectly capturing the spirit of the film. This legendary art became the album cover for the film's soundtrack the following year, when Davis also created a variation of it for another album recorded by the film's co-star, Jonathan Winters. And again in 1964, he parodied this increasingly iconic image once more, as a cover for a book produced by Mad Magazine, cunningly entitled, It's a World World, World World Mad. And needless to say, Alfred E. Newman replaces Spencer Tracy at the head of the crowd. 1970 saw the fourth version of this artwork by Davis for the film's re-release. This time the background broken globe is affixed to the top of a giant lugubrious head with a tourniquet. And I have to confess, the significance is maybe lost on me. Perhaps the new tagline, if ever... This mad mad, mad mad world needed, it's a mad mad, mad mad world, it's now, gives some clue, implying that maybe everyone thought the world was sick in 1970, and they thought they had problems. This artwork was also later used on the soundtrack CD in VHS covers in the early 1980s. 1983 saw the film released on video disc, remember those? With brand new artwork by Davis. This is a far more simplified composition than previously seen, featuring full-body caricatures of ten of the film's principal characters, hopelessly entangled in their efforts to snatch that still-elusive bag of money. Let's just pause to consider that exactly 20 years after its original release, Jack Davis has just been commissioned to create entirely new art to promote this film. Using the same poster artist for the same film two decades later is almost entirely unique, with possibly only Drew Struzan and Star Wars A New Hope being the only other exception that springs to my mind. In 2011, Fantagraphics produced a lavish hardback career retrospective of Davis's art called Jack Davis Drawing American Pop Culture. Of the many decades of his work depicting significant events and personalities, can we guess what was chosen for the all-important cover? What single image could possibly encapsulate the breadth and longevity of this man's phenomenal talent? Sure enough, on the front of this lavish book, Jack Davis's original portrait format poster artwork for It's a Mad 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 World is given its first airing since 1963. And it looks great. So this surely must be the fitting end of Jack Davis's association with this movie. Hmm, think again. So indelibly associated with this movie had he become that in 2014, two years before his death, the great man was commissioned to produce artwork for one final time. Criterion released a lavish Blu-ray package of the film with a booklet illustrated by Davis half a century after he created the original film posters. Jack Davis passed away in 2016 at the age of 91. A good life, well lived. Of his original commission from United Artists to produce the artwork for It's a Mad Mad, Mad Mad World, Jack Davis himself claimed that it was the assignment that forever changed the course of his career. It was the game changer, he said.
Rest in peace, sir. Stephen has kindly given me a moment to talk about myself. As you might be able to tell, I'm not based in the United States, but live in New Zealand. We used to be the Themyscira of the South Pacific, an island paradise unknown to the rest of the world, and often left off the globe altogether in science fiction movies. I'm looking at you, Star Trek First Contact. As I implied earlier, I'm an illustrator. I'm also a writer and a qualified graphic designer, and I enjoy combining these three elements into a visual communication form called information graphics. My passion for infographics, coupled with an equal love of classic British horror films, led me to the publication of my first book in 2018, Infogothic, an unauthorized graphic guide to hammer horror. As well as showcasing the very best graphics, illustration, and research I've ever produced, it has an introduction by the wonderful Caroline Munro and was long listed last year in the Kantar International Infographics Awards. Infogothic is available on Amazon. Since then, I have begun my own company, Shoreline Creative. I specialize in illustration and feature writing for magazines, news media, and children's books. And my next authored and illustrated book, A Young Reader's Guide to Astronomy in New Zealand, will be released next year. I also regularly contribute artwork to Little Shop of Horrors magazine and essays to various volumes from ATB Publishing. All that remains for me to say is thank you, Turek family, for allowing me to humbly participate in this very special episode, alongside so many accomplished podcasters, storytellers, and artists. Stay mad, everyone. And one of the things I thought was interesting, Valster brought up how many different designs that Jack Davis did for It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Um, you know, with the with all these different artworks and reinterpreting different things, and I thought that was just amazing. What What do you guys think of the poster work? The the, the poster work, the poster art. <laughs> well, it's just like how Ben we were talking about the trailer earlier. It's like, can you really sum up this movie in one poster? I mean, no wonder he, there's multiple versions or multiple, you know, poster art. And and um, I think it's great. It's it, I. I I've talked about this before. I, we might have talked about it on an earlier show. How poster art, poster artwork is just a, a lost art. That the, everything is just an image that can be easily photoshoppable, and you can take out the text and put, you know, Chinese text if it's a foreign market, and you can put, you know, Portuguese text, and it's just the same image. I mean, back then, every different country had their own different poster and the different poster art, and someone had drawn it. So I've, I've I, I love I love the artwork. I mean, it's a work of art, <laughs> literally. Um, so, what do you, Ben yeah. Michaela, What do you guys think of the poster art? I think it's pretty cool. Um, I know there's the one where you have all the different pictures of um, the the, ma- the the principal cast all in there, and you see them at different points. So, you kind of know from at least that poster, who you're kind of going to be seeing for the main part. So you get kind of like a sneak peek at who's going to be in it like you would um, with a a good number of like modern posters, like um, say the Marvel Avengers poster where you get them in that iconic pose and you can see, okay, Robert Downey Jr. is going to be in it. You got Scarlett Johansson and a whole bunch of other people. And so you kind of know 
what you're getting into, sort of, with the movie, which that poster kind of gives you, you see, like, Mickey Rooney and Buddy Hackett, and you're like, okay, I, I kind of know what I'm getting myself into with this movie. One of the things I like about the poster art that Jack Davis did is the whimsicalness of it and how it really ties in the movie. And every time he did it, it was, it was a different way because some of them are landscapes, some of them are portrait. And I know Michaela brought up the Marvel pictures. A lot of posters nowadays seem to be, as I think you mentioned, Josh, sort of like cut and paste in a way that it's the same motif. You know, you see some of the characters, um, some the, the the bigger bad is usually bigger in the back or something like that. And it's almost like no originality going on there. Nobody's really taking that time to put it in. And it's just like they're sending it to the production department. Okay, put something on there instead of sending it to an artist who is really talented and giving them the, the time and the money to come up with something um, really cool. And, th- and I think that's what's missing um, nowadays in a lot of poster artists, people giving getting that talented artwork. I know of House of the Gorgon, you had original artwork done for that, and it was it was, it was really eye-catching. But it just seems like that it's, it's a lost art, so to speak. You know, I didn't mean the pun, but... Yeah. It seems like a yeah, lot of Yeah, yeah, I mean, I... Oh, you go, you go. No, no, you go, go ahead. Okay, uh, it seems like a lot of posters nowadays are more or less copies of the Star Wars poster from A New Hope where it's Luke Skywalker holding the lightsaber, pointing straight up, Darth Vader looming in the background, all your other main characters kind of in the foreground. And it's like, these are your main characters. This guy's a bad guy, and he's after them. And that's like, it gives you the general outline of what's going to happen in just images. And nowadays, it's like you can almost do the same thing with uh, Avengers Endgame and Avengers Infinity War. You have all the Avengers, and then you have Thanos in the background. And then it's just the same thing, but that's all are... the new Star Wars films too. That's 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 every Marvel film is that has that same poster. I mean, Ant Man and the Wasp, and you know, it's, it's that same. Let's get the faces and let's get the big villain, and yeah, it, it's it's there's no. I don't want to say originality, but like you said, it's very very cut and paste. And where's you know the the. I immediately think of, I mean, going off topic, the, the poster for Mysterious Island or the poster for Poseidon Adventure where it's, it's tilted and it's just, it's such an iconic, energetic painting. And it's, whoa, I need, I need to see that. And, and I mean, I, again, preaching to the choir, I'm sure there are audiences that love those Marvel posters and, you know, oh, this is, I need to get this. I, I'm not in that camp. Um, I much prefer that the hand-drawn um, like you said, the first Star Wars poster, the, the Jaws poster. I mean, that's that's an iconic image. Um, and it's a mad, mad, mad world. It's just so intricate. And, and you can't really do that with, with the... You can't do it's a mad, 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 mad world poster with that cut and paste. But I guess you could. Um, I guess that's... Um, that's kind of what with the image on the, on the, the DVD, but it's different. It's, it's the little, it's, everyone has their own dollar bill, right? Or their, it's their own. Uh, yeah. Depending on what uh, case you get has like, there's different images on there. And um, some of them are, some of those ones are better, but they're not Jack Davis ones. And the Jack Davis yeah, ones, yeah. you can just tell because they're so it's, it's the story's there in the art. Yes. It's like the, I believe the main poster is the one where they're climbing all over the globe and, 
Spencer Tracy's character is like holding one hand onto the case and it's bursting with money. And it yeah. kind of tells you they're traveling all over the place to get this money. Although it does kind of make it seem like they're going to travel over the whole world, but it's really just <laughs> California. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a little misleading, but not too much. It feels like they traveled across the whole world. And yeah. oh, even in that, how the people are kind of smaller, he captures every single person's face to the extent that you can name the actor looking at the poster. And that's just crazy. You like you can't get that these days on a lot of the posters where they'll give you mm-hmm. like if it's a Iron Man poster, he'll be in the suit. You won't be able to tell if that's Robert Downey Jr. in there or not, and they probably just took the clip from the internet of the movie. So it's like you you get this original work where it's it's stylized and the proportions aren't necessarily human, but you you know who everyone is and you know what they're doing and why. And, you know, one thing I want to tie on, go back to what Ansel said earlier about independent films when he, he gave the quote, from, the quote from Stanley Kramer from 1949. Um, and I'm paraphrasing it, but it's basically about how independent work driving and trying to change stuff. The same thing with artwork because it's so cookie cutter nowadays. You just, you just wish that they would let spend that little bit of money. And really, when you talk about these motion pictures that are spending like $100, 200000000 million, they get a they get a, a a great artist is a little bit of money, you know, in, in that comparison, and and you get artwork that is memorable and that will that people want to put on their wall. They want to get the, like either a mini poster, the full poster, and those kind of things. And uh, that, that's the thing that has that longevity, and then people will see that. And then and, and when you can see the poster, and if they did a great job, it tells part of the story or sometimes the whole premise of what the movie is about. I think. That is just stunning, and that's what Jack Davis has been able to was able to do for his whole career. I mean, it's just it's just amazing the artwork he, he that he produced. I mean, what you could also do is the promotions that they used to do, where it'd be like the person who submits the best name for this will name it that, and they'll get a small prize or something like that. They could do that nowadays, where it's like the person who draws the best poster for our movie will use the poster, oh, yeah. and you get this prize and. You don't have to spend as much money on it, probably. You probably get, like, a million artworks submitted, and you get your pick. It's like, could probably do that. It's a marketing scheme. People will know about the movie more now. It could work. Well, I think, I remember one of my friends who does costumes was telling me that, I forget what movie it was, but it was some, like, space movie that came out where you could submit costume designs for an alien race and they picked whichever one they liked best but like they had so many people just submitting because i think they had to have a lot of aliens so they didn't want to pay a bunch of people to do all of the costume designs so they're like hey nerds of the world give us your ideas we'll put it in a brilliant. movie brilliant Actually, I think that happened in one of the Godzilla films. I think that's how Jet Jaguar got his beginning. Was yeah, they had a competition or like a a razor th- or competition or whatever to see who could create the best Godzilla villain hero type thing, best kaiju, 
And it was like a six-year-old wow. kid who won or something that created Jet Jaguar. And it was I like love it. this giant robot-looking thing that was super cool. It was like a superhero-type thing. But then they only used it for the one movie. And, and it looked so pre-Power Rangers. You know, you could just yeah. see where they got that idea from. Whoever created the Power Rangers probably remembered that movie. And it was like, oh. And it stuck with them because it, it was just a cool image. And um, in that movie... Probably the best suit was Jet Jaguar. That's the crazy thing. Like he probably had the most on-screen potential as a character in that film, and then they just never used him again. I'm sorry. I'm like, <laughs> I'm sidetracking. Here. That's okay. It's, it's so we we've all gone down fine. rabbit holes. So it's yeah. Except Michaela, she never goes down a rabbit hole. She stays straight above it and doesn't trip and fall. But speaking of artists, uh, there's one artist that we haven't talked about, and it was his last film, and that's Willis O'Brien, one of the greatest stop-motion creators ever. Without him, there would not possibly have been a Ray Harryhausen because he did King Kong, which led to Ray Harryhausen, and so on. I mean, it's, so it's, uh, this is the person that made the movie, or helped make the movie, I should say, that laid, led to Ray Harryhausen having his moment where he was young and just – decided to go into stop motion also and taking it even farther than Willis O'Brien did. But he did the um, fire engine scene and John Walsh, who is the head, one of the trustees of the Ray Harryhausen foundation and also a filmmaker of um, is going to talk about the special effects with um, Ray, with Willis O'Brien. I'm filmmaker and author John Walsh. For me, it's a mad, 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 mad world. Always has memories of Christmas. I live in the UK, and the film was often shown at Christmas time. It premiered in the 1970s on the BBC. I would gather around with my parents and watch this incredible journey of these people having outrageous stunts in outrageous locations, putting it alongside the James Bond film for its high ambition, all to seek out this crazy accidental inheritance. It, it's only a possibility now. It's only a possibility that this man was telling the truth. If it was the truth, then it is a fact that this place is almost 200 miles away. Now, I suggest that we quietly get into our cars and drive down there at a safe, sound speed, keeping each other in sight of each other. And then when we get down there, we dig up the money, providing that there is some money there. And when we do find it, we share it amongst us in a simple manner. For the outrageous climax that has the cast dangling precariously atop a fire ladder after scaling a fire escape in an abandoned building, it was the perfect ending. And this is where things clicked for me. At the time, when I was watching the film, when I was very young, I was into stop-motion animation, claymation, plasticine. Now, of course, much of that sequence has been animated by Willis O'Brien with the help of Marcel Delgado. They were the stop-motion experts behind the original King Kong. Perhaps audiences today who are much more sophisticated can notice some of the stop-motion moves, but actually most of the special effects in the film are seamless, and I think Willis O'Brien did an amazing job there. Sadly, it was to be his swan song. Willis O'Brien would die a year before the film was actually released. So he died in November 1962, and the film was released the following November in 19. 63. It's a real shame. Today I'm a trustee of the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, 
And of course, those of you who know Ray Harryhausen's films will know how much he was influenced by the work of Willis O'Brien and in fact worked with Willis O'Brien on The Mighty Joe Young. The overall budget was a record for a comedy at $9.4 million. But it certainly paid off for the producer and director Stanley Kramer with American box office receipts of just over $43 million, which would be something like $400 million in today's money. So it's certainly a gamble that paid off for him. Wait a minute, are you knocking this country? Are you saying something against America? Against it? I should be positively astounded to hear anything that we said for it. Well, the whole bloody place is the most unspeakable matriarchy in the whole history of civilization. Look at yourself and the way your wife and her strumpet of a mother push you through the hoop. As far as I can see, American men have been totally emasculated. They're like slaves. They die like flies from coronary thrombosis while their women sit under hair dryers eating chocolates and arranging for every second Tuesday to be some sort of Mother's Day. In 2010, I made a documentary about the UK general election called Tory Boy the Movie. And I was looking around for music that would best encapsulate the craziness and the chaos of the British electoral scene. Every time I thought of music from films, the amazing score by Ernest Gold would always come into my head. And I thought, is it possible? Could I use this music from the 1960s to, uh, to score a contemporary film from, uh, from 2010? Well, I gave it a go and it worked handsomely. The film Tory Boy the Movie was a big success for me. You can currently see it on Amazon Prime. Uh, it's free to see there as part of the Amazon Prime deal. And it follows a, a particular scandal in UK politics in 2010 and stars me myself. So this film has had a great impact on me as a filmmaker, not just because of the stop motion and not just because of the music. It stayed with me. And recently when the film was re-released by the Criterion Collection, I was delighted to see, um, I think it was nearly 40 minutes of additional footage I'd never seen before. I always knew it as being a very long film, but now it's an outrageously long film. I'm amazed at the time that the studio would green light such an epic road trip. But it's lucky for us they have. The film's scope and ambition makes it hard, if not possible, to replicate, and it's one of the few Hollywood greats that so far hasn't been cursed with a modern remake. You know what I need? I need a drink. There's some ice and stuff back there. Why don't you make us all some old fashions? Old fashions? Do you think you ought to drink while you're flying? Well, stop kidding, will you? And make us some drinks. I mean, just press the button back there and mark booze. It's the only way to fly. <laughs> well, I hope that my small tributes in my film Tory Boy the Movie will help at least expand people's experience of Ernest Gold's wonderful score. And I urge you to keep watching the film, keep telling people about it, and if you're making a crazy documentary about an election, why not visit the score for It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, and you won't go wrong. You can find out more about my work at johnwalshfilmmaker.com. You can find out more about the Ray Harryhausen Foundation at rayharryhausen.com. Also, my book Harryhausen, The Lost Movies is currently out. It was published last year by Tyson Books and is available through Amazon. And in October this year, you can order Flash Gordon, the official story of the film that looks at the classic film from 1980, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. You're kidding me? Boy, are you bugging me, man? I'm gonna, when I get, I'm gonna nail, ooh, I'm, I'm getting bugged now, whoa, man. And, and, and I gotta agree with John, I thought it, it was seamless. 
you know, when you watch the fire engine, you, you really, there's a couple of times you can tell it was um, a figure that was not real falling or whatever. But when you're watching the fire engine itself moving around and the way they filmed it with the building in the background, you could not tell. I never knew it was stop motion until John sent me his thing about that he was going to talk about stop motion. I'm like, hey, wait, that was stop motion? That's how good it was. I didn't know. Did you ever know, well, I, I, I was. That's exactly what I was going to say. I didn't know until you said it right now. I was like, whoa, okay. That's, I, I, I always thought it was a little uh, uh, like, a, like a toy thing, but I, didn't, I had no idea it was stop motion and that it was Willis O'Brien. So very cool. Yeah, I'm learning. I, the more you know, I couldn't tell that it was stop motion. I thought that they were just like had done a crazy filming thing where they used like a bendy ladder or something made out of rubber yeah. or whatever, and they were just throwing like dummy bodies off of it or something. And that's yeah. what I thought. I was just like, oh man, they're just chucking dummy bodies everywhere in stop motion. I I never would have guessed. Yeah. I didn't know it was stop motion. I don't know what you're looking at me like that for. I guess that's when you know you've reached the epitome of your craft, when people can't even tell you're doing it anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and again, you have to get credit the way he filmed it and the way it was filmed in the movie, so it was all set up so beautifully, so you couldn't tell what it was. It's it's just it's great when you get craftsmen that are so good at their, at their, at their um, field and that's the thing a lot of people forget about films is that it's not just the actors and the directors. It's a, it takes a whole team of people all being on their game in order to make a film, especially a good film. I mean, you know, and that kind of thing. So if you have, if you have a couple of people that are not doing their job, it can really affect detrimentally the whole picture with Josh. I know you know more than I do, especially because you're working with a smaller budget and smaller crews. I, f- I think you wear like 15 hats on your productions or something like that. You know, you're, you're a little bit of everything. Yes. Yeah. Like, like, like you said, I wish I would have the budget for <laughs> it's a mad, 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 mad world. Uh, that, to have that budget, man. Um, but yeah, maybe someday. <laughs> I mean, also in that, the ladder scene, you got to talk about on screen continuity in that scene, especially for 1963, where, you, you never notice that something's changed between the live filming and the claymate or the stop motion where it's like the continuity of where each person is, is so accurate that you don't realize there's a difference. I will say there is like one shot in that scene but it's live action to live action where Sylvester like falls off the side of the sca- the fire escape and then in the next shot, he's like right next to Spencer Tracy, and it doesn't look like he's done moved at all. But that—that's I, I haven't. I didn't catch that. What spent when Sylvester fell from the tree? No, like when they were still on the fire escape on the side of the building. There's a part where it shakes a little bit, and now Sylvester's dangling. In the very next shot, he's like on the other side of Spencer Tracy's character, like in the middle of the fire escape. I don't know if oh. there was like a weird cut there or what, but that was something that I saw. It doesn't take away from the movie. I just saw it and I was like, oh. 
I never noticed. I mean, it, I mean that that I can imagine if you're doing multiple takes of the fire escape, which I'm sure was all stuntmen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I doubt Spencer Tracy was caught anywhere near that fire escape, except maybe for a close up or two. And then like, let's, let's yeah. get Spencer out. And I'm sure it was not Spencer Tracy running up all those stairs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was definitely not uh, Bill Silver's. Um, there's, there's a few when they, there's the, the tracking shot where they're, they're going up this, every time I was trying to see, I was doing that, that filmmaking thing. I was like, who, okay, who's actually here? Clearly not Spencer Tracy and all of Phil Silver's you'll notice he never, you never see his face. So I'm putting my money on that. It was a stunt man or he wasn't available that day or just didn't want to run up all those stairs. Um, but it's definitely Jonathan Winters and I, I could catch other people, but I was like, why is Phil Silver's? Why do we never see his face going up these stairs? Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, who, who knows? People go back to the stuntman and who really wanted to get on the swinging thing or who would they would allow to get on that swinging uh, ladder. Yeah, I personally wouldn't get anywhere near it, but that's, that's you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> when you're in your 50s, you're like, hey, that, that's for the younger folks. That's for you guys. <laughs> that's for you younger people. If you want to go up there and, and kill yourself, you go right at it. <laughs> Go right ahead. Let's be real. Tom Cruise would have been the first person on the darn thing. He would have been like, he let me do it twice. He, yeah. Him and Jackie Chan. Yeah. They would have both been there doing everything. <laughs> they could have had all the close-ups they want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tom Cruise would have come in on a helicopter, jumped out of the helicopter, landed on the ladder. The ladder would have slingshot him into space. <laughs> it would have been a completely different movie. Which he then would have used his... um. You know, bodysuit um, glider, yeah, and then eventually suit. Uh, swimsuit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> landed in a submarine and then yeah. sailed off <laughs> with the money. He would have he would have yeah. been the only one to pull it off because it would have been mission yeah. impossible. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I think I agree with Ben. I think um, does anybody want to talk about anything else that they really enjoyed about the movie so far? Before we start talking about things that we felt could have been improved. A little bit. I really like the one part of the movie where um, Mr. and Mrs. Crumb just got stuck in the department store basement. And Culpepper is saying, is about to tell somebody to go let them out. And one of the oh, other yeah. like police officers from the Santa Rosa unit he just says, well, that wouldn't be fair. And then everybody just turns to look at him and he's like, well, if you're going to help them, you got to help the others. And they're like, what do you mean? Like, well, it's a race, isn't it? (laughs) We're watching them. And then he's like, personally, I like that Pike guy. Yeah, I think he's a personally, (laughs) I'm all in on Pike. (laughs) And they were like, what? (laughs) And you know, somewhere there had to have been a scene that they might have wanted to film where all the officers were taking bets. You just know there had to be a board yep. with odds, you know, and like who had what. It, it, that would have been a scene to show. It's like, it's like yeah, I, got money on, I got money on Pike. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that translates perfectly into, into rat race because that's what, what happens is that all of the betting people are watching the map and they're putting down bets. It, was, it had that, very much that, that same vibe. Well, I'm going for this guy. I'm going for this guy. Yeah, but at some points when they were doing the police were like saying what who was where and everything, it was like, Oh, this reminds me of a horse race. They got that like yeah, horse yeah. race announcer voice going and they're like, 
And first we got the whatever car it was, and then second this one followed up by the yeah. red. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> right. The That's furniture right. truck. I liked how they really weren't afraid to shoot whatever scenes Stanley Kramer wanted, it seemed. How they did several scenes of planes shot from other planes mm. probably and it yes. was very like i can imagine extremely difficult to film scenes where you had the vision and then you had to go out and actually create it in such a way that it worked where it wasn't just it looked like it wasn't just two toys flying in the air it looked like real planes moving in the air and you never know how they did it there's probably someone somewhere that's going oh we shot this this way but it's like watching it you believe they're flying and they weren't afraid to keep doing it and it worked the stunt coordinator who did the the, the cars the planes whatever Definitely earned his money. I mean, it was just, as I said, there was a separate, there's two scripts for this, and there's a separate script for all the stunt work, all the action scenes that were filmed separately from the actors. And um, it was it was just amazing how they were able to pull it off. So whoever the stunt coordinator was, I, I tip my hat to you, sir, or ma'am, because you did an excellent job. And I will there's, there's say, one. I will say oh, the one scene where before Culpepper goes in to like get the money from them when he's having the police officers pull out, they have these three like unmarked police cars pull in sync right next to each other. And then Culpepper's yeah. car is in the middle and then the other two cars back up in sync and then go forward. And I don't know how they like that takes a lot of timing and like you have to be exact so you don't run into each other. And that kind of synchronization, it just it just added to the humor and the skill that was put into this movie. The whole the whole movie is filled with little things that we just take for granted because it's like a big movie. It's like ah, look, they just completely near miss in, on the on the highway, or that they're all going at the same speed and they they're trying to pass each other, and you're like ah, it's like that took a lot of time to plan and and. And, you know, how many takes did this take? And let's get the timing right. And w- one thing I wanted to bring up was Phil Silver's in, in the in the car and he goes into the, the river. And I was like, that's actually him. Yeah. That's actually, I was watching, I was like, oh, my God, that's actually him. How do they plan this? Is he being pulled on a rope and he's actually going into the water? That's, 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 again, we take it for granted, but how many times do they have to do that? You, you think if they have multiple cars, the car sinks. Okay, well, we messed up. Let's drag it out of the water. Let's dry it out, let's get him in a new costume, dry his costume, and let's try it again. Well, the camera, the light's going, we need to do all these things. Like, just the, the, the craftsmanship and just these stunts that we take for granted nowadays. It's like, ah, hey, look, they're, they're into the river. No, they actually had to do that. And speaking of, speaking of stunts, whoever built the gas station, yeah. built, <laughs> those guys who built it, obviously people, they built it in a way so it will fall apart. You know, and yeah. it has to fall apart a certain way. And if I remember hearing correctly, reading correctly, this happened in one take. So it all happened in one take. And what Jonathan Winters does with the gas station attendants in that gas station <laughs> is just, if, if you watch one scene, that's, that's the yeah. scene when Jonathan Winters literally hawks out. 
Like, that is probably the sequence that set up the rest of his career. Like, just that gas station Easily. sequence. There's a lot of secrets. I mean, like I said, I just love Jonathan Winters. And, and Josh said, you know, too, and, and, and it's just his – he just brought his A game. I mean, it was it was perfect. His facial expressions, yeah. his role. I mean, it was just – and you felt so sorry for Pike because he kept being <laughs> – the. everybody kept taking advantage of him because he seemed like this innocent guy who was like takes mm-hmm. people at their word and then he gets – Phil Silvers' his character takes advantage of him. Ethel Merman's character takes advantage of him. You know, and it's just like this poor guy. That's why, like, that police guy wanted – we wanted Pike to win. And yeah. he doesn't win. <laughs> no one wins. They all win because Ethel Merman slipped on a banana peel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, fair enough, fair enough. But um, the, anybody, anybody else have anything they want to talk about that they really enjoyed before we move into things we felt could have been improved on? I did want to say – if someone had told me that Jonathan Winters had been in like 30 movies before this, I totally would have believed him. Because he, it definitely didn't have that, this is his first movie feel. It had that, this like, oh, yeah, yeah. he's a pro, they're all pros, they've been doing this their whole lives kind of feel. It, it didn't feel like he was the new guy. It felt like he was just as experienced as all these other characters. Like, it felt like he was just as experienced as Sid Caesar or Milton Berle. Where it was like, he, he just did it. I never would have thought that this was his first film. Also, he just got, um, he had some uh, mental problems that he just came out of the hospital with. And um, the way he ended up taking the role, he was called. And at first he wasn't going to do it because he wanted to recover. And his wife told him, if you don't take this call or take this role, you're never going to work again. You know, they're never going to keep calling you. And so he ended up taking it. But he would... So he was like literally just recover, just getting re- done recovering from um, some mental illness issues that he was going through and getting his medications and other stuff worked out. So he, it, so you take that into account, it's even more of an impressive performance. You, you would never know. All right. So well, yes, one one more thing I want to mention. It's a very small scene towards the beginning of the movie. It's when we first start to see like Culpepper and he goes into his office and he tosses his hat to the hat rack and it sails out the window. And then the one sergeant guy is is like, I'll go get it, sir. And he goes to get it. And then you just see this guy. He's just driving down the road. And And then his eyes light up and he swerves his car through, I think, like three lanes of traffic to... Run over this hat, and it is just so funny because it's like, why? And he never says anything. He just yeah. has this goofy grin on his face, and he's like, <laughs> and he just it, runs over the hat. And, and and as Ben said, that was Jerry Lewis's cameo in it, and it's just, it's, it's again the facial expressions that Jerry Lewis brings is always wonderful, and he went on to be not just a great actor, but also a great filmmaker too. So it's just, um, it's amazing when the stuff that he was able to do in the, in the sixties. Now that scene almost looked like it could have been an entire silent movie just because of how the cars were all going around and the guy was trying to get the hat and they didn't really say anything for that part. And then especially Jerry Lewis's performance, it almost looked like it was from a silent movie where he's just not saying anything and it's all in his face. 
Cool. All right. So, Mikhail, you have anything else you want to add before we go into the things? No, no, okay. I'm good. That's that's one good thing about this film. It's 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 there's so much, and and I know when we're all done this, we're going to be thinking we should have talked about this or that, mm. because it's 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 like you said, it's 161 minutes, but it's a lot of it is just gold. Um, actually, Mikhail, we'll start with you. What is something that you felt that could have been improved or you know or, or done differently in the film for your in your your opinion? Let's let's not start with me and start with Ben. Okay. <laughs> Um, it's kind of hard to say what I would change about the film, mostly because the things that I would change would be to make it more realistic, but then it wouldn't be as comedic. So it's like, uh, I would say change some of the things where they're like when they stop to talk it out or when they try and drive away from each other especially the one where jonathan winters tries to stop on the turn and like ditch him he's behind them how is he going to get in ahead of them by stopping like that was in my mind i'm like what is he planning here he's gonna stop so that he can pass them when they're in front of him like that was what i was thinking so i i guess what i would change wouldn't make it as comedic as it is but would make it into a more serious type film or like more logical. So it would be, I guess, kind of more like Rat Race or not as violent, but like Death Race 2000 where it's a logical chain of events versus... (laughs) Whoa, whoa, whoa. A funny chain of events. Well, there's a jump. Wow, okay. I don't know why, but Death Rates, I guess it's because I saw it more recently. It just kept replaying in my head every time that I was watching this because all the car chases. Oh, one thing I, I thought of that would have made it more funny is how, or in my opinion, funnier. Uh, in like the Herbie the Love Bug movies, you would see these cars falling apart behind Herbie, or you'd see Herbie fall apart as they were driving it. And... I kind of thought it would have been cool if they had done that with one of the cars. Like they kind of did it with the British dude's car, Lieutenant Colonel Hawthorne, where his tires fell off and stuff. It, it, if they just hammed it up a little bit more with the car, I, they probably had a lot of budget limits with their vehicles and all because they're expensive and you got to pay really skilled people to do them up like that. But I thought it would have been funny to have, that car, maybe the convertible that Finch was driving instead of just getting rear-ended, having it, like, start falling apart from the strain and or something like that. Well, they kind of did that with Otto Meyer's car, Phil Silver's car, because um, Jonathan Winters rips off the one door as he's... And that, I got to give this guy credit. He actually does a humanitarian role to get the guy to the medicine to his wife. He goes out of his way, which shocks me because it doesn't fit his character at all that he ended up doing this. But... uh Oh, he's driving down the thing. You could see as he's going down, as hits a stone, he's leaking stuff. He's leaking radiator fluid because you see the steam coming yeah. out of it. And then eventually he goes sailing, as Josh <laughs> said, down the down the river. <laughs> What's this line? This is a car, not a kayak. Yeah, yeah. And the kid's going, it's easy, see? <laughs> as he walks across the river. <laughs> he walks across like ankle deep water. 
And as soon as the car goes in it, it's like six feet deep. <laughs> missed the short part. He missed it by a lot. I mean, it was, yeah. And he's yelling at the kid, oh, I'll give you, you know. Kid should have got his money up front. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he got his money's worth in entertainment. That is true. All right, so, Josh, do you have anything that you felt that should have been um, tweaked or done differently, in your opinion? Oh, um, well, Ben, you, you kind of uh, touched upon it, where it's like you, if you change something, it kind of it's almost like, like taking the, the card out of the house of cards because it all falls apart. I mean, it, it's, if you want to, you were talking about we want more realism or something. It's like it's kind of we want, you know, the wackiness of, of uh Jim Backus, you know, being drunk on the plane is like, what kind of, a, that's such a wacky, you try and make that more serious and everything else kind of falls apart. You need that, that gigantic, uh, you know, canvas of comedy to, to, to be huge and big. My thing. And again, and then my, my person, it all goes into personal taste. Um, like I've, I've mentioned multiple times, just that, that still shot of, of them. I find simplicity and just, silence a lot funnier in, in just, just in general. I just think like little reactions in, in, and just that the, I immediately think of Buster Keaton, you know, in the silence films where he doesn't even react to something like he'll be on in, in, uh, with the big train one. I can't, Dan Day's going to shoot me for not remembering what the, the name is. Um, he, the general, the general. The general. Oh God. I was about to say yeah. the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in, in in the general, I mean, these crazy things are happening. The the, the huge train car is right in front of him. It just appears out of nowhere, and he just the, his stone face of just no reaction just cracks me up. I would want more of that in this, but again, that that detracts from the big screaming and yelling and stuff from the film. Um, so again, it would just be personal things where it's like, I think it would be funnier if we just downplayed some of this or we just did this a little differently. But again, it's pulling the card out from the house of cards. That's kind of the point of the movie is this gigantic comedy. Um, I, I, it's, it's such a lovely, like I said at the very beginning, a little nostalgic time capsule. It's a, I, I, I've just grown to love it for what it is and not even... There's people who's like, well, Ethel Merman is so loud and she's annoying. And it's like, well, that's kind of the point. That's kind of who she is, who she was. And we get to see her still doing her stick on, on this. So, yeah, I, I guess it's, it's a long-winded question that I wouldn't change anything. <laughs> long-winded <laughs> answer. Um, who's next, Michaela? Yeah. I, I don't think I would really change anything big i think maybe the only thing that i might change which we kind of all sort of talked about a little bit earlier is having emmeline marcus finch the like young wife and the daughter of mrs marcus just not go to jail because she didn't <laughs> she, <laughs> she actually didn't, really didn't wanna, do anything she didn't she didn't do anything illegal she killed him by association she she tried to get them to not do anything illegal. She didn't want to do anything at all. She just wanted to have a nice relaxing weekend. And instead she ends up going to jail. Now, I guess maybe the only thing I can really think of is if instead of 
if Culpepper hadn't had all the police go back and she had run in, or like if Culpepper hadn't chose to try and take the money, if she had somehow just told him everything and got them all arrested, just mm. perchance. That's different. And then found the money with them and turned it in, and then she ended up getting a reward for finding the money where all everybody else went to jail. And she just got money, and she got to live her own life free of everybody that had been holding her back. But I love the movie how it is, so. But that would probably be the only thing that I'd consider. What about you, Dad? Okay. I really enjoyed this movie, but ever since I saw this movie as a boy, and every time I've seen this film, there's one character I always thought that could have been edited out completely, and it would have saved the film. That's Sylvester. I never liked Sylvester's character, not because, not like for Ben brought up with Mrs. Marcus because she was supposed to be unlikable, but I just felt the character was not needed. You know, like I think if his character was not there, the movie still would have worked just as well, and and it would have been twenty minutes shorter. <laughs> but it's hilarious, like Dick Sean driving up whimpering about crying to his mom that's hilarious like i I will, I will say sorry i don't want to interrupt you but but just to add on that that that's one part that cracks him up every single time he's and he, he's just sobbing and then there's one shot of the car and it's just like sailing in the air like yeah. it goes over a bump and it's just that cracks me up every time um but i i i'm sorry to continue then sorry yeah. that's like that's what i'm saying like it's hilarious that he's driving back to his mom and he's like whimpering, crying. He's like, that's why you had me, mom. And he, he didn't even listen to her, so he's doing the wrong thing. I will say, Mrs. Marcus's reaction after the phone call with Sylvester was hilarious when she hangs the phone up and talks to Pike and her daughter and says, he's coming here <laughs> to me. And she's just like flabbergasted because like, it's, like the way, it's the only time she says something so yeah. low-key. And so on. So yeah, there there are good there are com- comedic elements. But I'm thinking if if people have a problem with the length of the film, the one thing I think yes. that could be excised from the film is that character, and it would still work as a film, and it would be 20 minutes shorter. You know, and it, you know, which you know, and that's the only reason I'm saying that. It's just, but I've never I, I've never liked this character. It's just I don't know. I've just never got into it. And maybe it's maybe it's Dick Sean. I don't know. I just never. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, um, I, I, I see where you're coming from. I think a lot of it is, I'm sure it was a lot, because he kind of has like that that beach, he and the, the chicker, and then they're doing like the go-go dancing. I'm sure that was much funnier back in the day. I, I Something that I see and I'm like, I wonder I wonder if that has aged well for a modern audience. I'm sure, I mean, I who knows? Maybe it wasn't funny then, but I, I, I agree with you. Some, some of his stuff is like, ah, it's, uh, Especially all the stuff with the, the, the bikini girl, and I was like, I don't think this is that funny. But again, that's that's personal taste. There's probably people listening to this that are like, that was the funniest. How you? How could you cut out the funniest guy? Um, but I see where you're coming from, Steve. Yeah, it's it's like I said when we do so. It's, it's my opinion. I mean, it's just it's just I never yeah. cared for the scene where they're doing the go-go thing. I'm just like, oh, you know, whatever. Maybe, maybe they could have reworked the character a little bit. Um, Adapt those scenes there because I think that's what turns me off of him is that he's just there. I'm just, uh, it could yeah. be a generational thing because that the people in the, that were watching in 1963, that was when all that was really 
a lot bigger of a thing than it is when I, even when I saw, and I'm the oldest of the three of us here by far, I saw it in the seventies. So, I mean, it was like way after, you know, probably 12 mm-hmm. years after the film come out when I probably first saw it, I'm just guessing maybe even more than that. And, you know, by then that, that scene had long passed at the use point of say, yeah, that, that it's no longer the scene, man. You know, it's, it's, just, it just didn't work for me. <laughs> I will say one scene that I would say you should take out, even if it's not just for cutting time, but just for modern audiences, is the scene where uh, Spencer Tracy's character tells Officer Schwartz to go and get coffee. And then he's just like clearly staring at her. Oh. I, I was, everybody I, in the everybody in the police station was staring at and yeah. the music changed, yeah. even if it's like, definitely a sixties a sixties moment. I, I'll say it. That, that cracks me up. That still cracks me up. Uh, <laughs> it cracks me up in retrospect going like, oh, that's Spencer Tracy in that scene. But um, I think I even said it when Mikhail and I were watching. I was like, oh, that didn't age well. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can also say, you know, there, there's always a couple scenes that don't age well. And in this film, when they, they made films back then, they weren't designed to be consumed as they are nowadays. I mean, pretty much it was going to go out, it'd be done. You might re-release it if it does really well down the road um, and, and that kind of thing. But the, you know, most, most movies are designed to be one and done. Yeah. I will say if they ever wanted to do a sequel, it could be whoever has to defend these people in court. <laughs> <laughs> I think I mentioned that to Mikhail. I was like, you know, legally speaking, I think you can get most of these people off without charges. <laughs> And we all know how Michaela likes those legal movies. Oh, <laughs> yeah, just, just bring back Henry March. Wait, F- Frederick March. Frederick March and Spencer Tracy, and they'll do another legal drama. This time, Spencer Tracy is the defendant, and Frederick March is the def- prosecutor, defense attorney, one or the other. I'd watch it. Exactly. It's just like, you know, the defense against the mad, 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 mad world. Who knows? I mean, um, (laughs) the mad, 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 mad plea. (laughs) Actually, and it's kind of funny because I'm sure all of us have been trying to count the mads that we do. And I know the people that have been doing it, you know, we're like making sure we do four mads. Stanley Kramer was asked one time by a reporter, how come you don't have, how come it's four meds? Why four? And he goes, why not five? He goes, you're right. I should have done five. You know, it, it's, it's just, <laughs> you're right. You know, so, so something along those lines where it's just like, it's, it's because he decided to go with four. Why? Who knows? I mean, it's like, why not do six? <laughs> yeah. Well, see, that could be the sequel. Does that an extra mad? Every sequel, just put another mad on it till it gets to be. <laughs> Or, or, you know, or it's a really mad, 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 mad world or something like that. But I mean, yeah, yeah, this, this the madder world, the madder world. But really, that's it. That's, that's my only like thing that personally I felt if they wanted to shorten the film, they could change it, I, you know, and that kind of thing. There's not really much else I would change with it. I mean, you know, it's if you try to tweak things here or there, there here, I'm just curious I'd really love to see the Criterion version to see the extra 36 minutes because we're obviously we're never going to see the 210 or would be out by now just to see what other footage was in there that I've never seen. And this, this could, 
flesh it out even more with certain things that we're like wondering, oh, did they have this part in there? Maybe they have the police officers betting. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it was in the 210-minute version. I mean, that would just be so cool if they opened up this, like, you know, like when Call Pepper was in there, they all had their little things like they're betting, and as soon as he comes out, this door <laughs> opens up, they, they flip the board over so they could just see the map instead of oh, showing geez. the betting board or something along those lines would be, you know, to me, humorous and, and add even more um, depth to the movie. But one of the things I love about this movie is because it gave, as you said, I think everybody said, it's giving the characters time to breathe, time to, to let those moments happen, like Spencer Tracy and Buddy Hackett looking at each other, then Spencer Tracy's character smiling, and then Buddy Hackett's character smiling after that. Most movies don't give that time to let the characters, the actors have those moments to develop. And whether that was in the script or whether those two just did that when they were there, I don't know. It'd be like Josh said, it'd be curious to read the script to see like what parts were added in because those are scenes as, as, as Josh would know that you write in, but sometimes the actors will take that performance and you're just like, Oh, that's something I never would have thought of. And yeah. Yeah. I guess this is also the kind of movie where you have a lot of people that are stars or become stars soon after the film. So it's like you don't know who exactly is going to have screen chemistry with who, and you don't really have a lot of their time to test it and everything. So it's kind of as the movie develops, you figure out who goes well together. Like Buddy Hackett and Mickey Rooney went really well together. And the funny thing is I was talking to Patrick when we were watching it and Buddy Hackett and Mickey Rooney were his least two favorite characters. He said, I didn't like those guys that went to Las Vegas or when they go to Las Vegas. He, everybody, as, as Josh said, is drawn to different people and different characters. And I think that's what makes it interesting. You have people from all these different backgrounds and going through it, everybody can identify with one or two or more characters, but at least one I think everybody can identify with as, as a personal favorite and just root for um, before we get our recommends in, we have a mini review from Mitch Gonzalez, who um, watched the film with his son, and his son was watching it for the first time, and he talks about his reaction and his son's reaction. So let's listen to that. All right, this part of the episode, we're joined with Mitch Gonzalez, and unlike everybody else, sadly, Mitch doesn't have recording equipment, so he gets the burden of doing it with me. Um, how are you doing today, Mitch? I'm doing great. How are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm doing fine, doing fine. And um, as you know, we're doing It's a Mad, 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 Mad World podcast. And um, you wanted to share your experiences of the movie from the past and the present. Yeah, yeah. So when uh, you offered this uh, assignment, so to speak, I guess, of watching uh, the movie and then getting various uh, opinions of it from, from a bunch of different people, my perspective it, uh, was uh, taking it from the point of uh, watching it as a uh, as a young kid uh, back, you know, back in the um, you know we'll say about mid seventies or so. It was whenever they were broadcasting it on network television at that time. Uh, that's the only place you can see it was when it was uh, broadcast on on uh, network television. Uh, at that time, there was no home video, home home media, or anything like that. So you were kind of at, uh, you know, you had to wait until it was broadcast. So. Um, back then my brother and I, you know, loved the movie. It was so much fun to watch as a kid. And, uh, he and I would wait for it and we'd, you know, check the TV guide. And, um, as soon as we saw that it was, it was going to be a broadcast, we were very excited and we couldn't, you know, we couldn't wait for that day to arrive when it was, uh, when it was shown. So, uh, this time around, I have the Criterion disc 
so I was able to pop it in and I can watch it anytime I want. And uh, this time around, I was uh, able to watch it with my son. He's, uh, I think he's 22 now, actually. Um, but he had never seen it before. And when I popped it in, he decided to sit down and watch it with me for the first time. So I got to kind of experience it again through young eyes. So not real young, but at least, you know, he had never been exposed to it before like I had had. So he didn't know what was coming. And it was, it, it was kind of fun to watch it through his eyes. I know when, when I was younger, man, I would watch the movie. It wasn't every year, but almost like every other year. I would watch it with my dad most of the time, and he would tell me who the people were. And I know when I, you know, the different actors that were in there. And when I watched it with Michaela and Ben, I would be doing the same thing with them. And I'm sure that you had to do that with your son, right? Oh, yeah. I had to point out quite a bit of the names. He, he knew a few. There was a, 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 you know, a handful of people he knew, but for the most part, he was kind of going, you know, who's that or, you know, who are they? And so I kind of, and, and I think more times than not, I was, I was saying, you know, uh, that, that's the three stages making a cameo or that's, you know, Buster Keaton or whoever, you know, I was pointing out to him and then I hit pause and explain some of that to him. So that was kind of fun. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, it's definitely not his cup of tea. Uh, I mean, he's not, he wasn't familiar with a lot of the comedy acts, uh, but, but, you know, that said, he he did enjoy the film after we were done watching, and he said, "You know, that was a lot, was a lot of fun to watch." And he's glad he sat down and, and spent the time with me. And we kind of watched it over two nights because uh, uh, what's kind of cool about the Criterion disc is they have the uh, entrance music, kind of the overture, and then once you get through that, then you watch the movie. Then there's an intermission. So I know we watched the, the first part of it to the intermission on one night, and then the following day we, we popped it in and, and watched the second. Uh, Part, you know, the, the after the intermission section. So it's kind of cool to do that. And I explained that to him that back in the back in the day, movies you'd go to a theater and actually get intermissions once in a while. So he, he thought that was pretty cool. Oh, I know. And and actually, I think by the Criterion version, I don't have that version, but by doing it, it does make it nice split if you wanted to watch it over two nights because it is as a lot of us have been saying in in our um, talk about the movie, a, a long movie. And I think the Criterion version has the the longest version available that's uh, I think available to people and uh, to purchase. Yeah, I know. I, I forgot which version I watched on the Criterion disc, but um, there's a couple, they have a different thing. I know there's two, there might be a, three different versions of it, but I know there's two different ones. And I just watched the, the one that pops up as kind of the, the, the default uh, movie in, in the, in the set there. Um, but it is the one with the, uh, the overture and then it has the intermission. And I kind of explained to him when I was a kid, and I saw Jaws, there was an intermission in Jaws, and even when we watched Jaws, you know, we'll watch that every once in a while, and the point, the point where the intermission came in, in the theater when I saw it originally, that's how old I am. I saw Jaws in the theater, the first <laughs> run. <laughs> but I pointed out, this is the part where they have the intermission, and we'd go run and use the bathroom, get some popcorn, do whatever, and get back to our seats. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, that was back when going to a movie was um, – the destination, you know, we didn't have home video. We didn't have uh, any of that, you know, Netflix or anything where you watch, you know, streaming movies anytime you want. You had to go see the movie first run and then you had to wait until it was ever, you know, sometimes they put them back in the theater. I know Star Wars did that where they, you know, I think they played for a while and then they re-released it again. That's when they added the new hope, like getting ready for Empire. But, um, you know, you'd have to go see it first run, or you'd see it when they showed it again in theater, or you see it on network TV when uh, one of the the uh, networks got the rights to show it. So, 
it was pretty limited back in the day. So it was really an event to watch, watch his films and, you know, mad, 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 mad world being one of them. It was an event and uh, it was a lot of fun to, to watch. Oh, I agree with you. And I think that's one of the things that um, most of the people that have contributed ourselves included have said, this was back when you had the event movie and, and people went there. And I think for people that want to see this movie back in its day, when it came out, you got your money's worth. I mean, this was something oh, yeah. that had a little bit of everything. If you in a comedy, you know, well, all across the, the board, all all the all the different um, tropes that you could ask right. for. Right, and if you exactly, and if you were lucky enough, you saw it in the what the Cinerama where they had the three projectors projecting, you know, over a kind of a big curved screen. So it was kind of the precursor to uh, uh, the uh, what's it called? Um, uh, I'm blanking on the name now, the but. IMAX. Uh, the IMAX, exactly. Kind of the precursor of the IMAX where it was a big presentation and, you know, they really, it wasn't just a standard 35 millimeter projection on a screen. It was three synced up um, projectors projecting the Cinerama. So it was, it was, it was an event to say the least. And uh, Mitch, I know you're, you're known mostly for your special effects, um, working with the Mimiverse and um, Christopher Mims productions or St. Euphoria productions and Gooey productions. Um, the effects in the movie are mostly practical. There's a little bit of stop motion in there. Um, do you want to talk anything about any of the, any of the practical effects or, or stop motion effects at all from your point of well, view? I know, well, I know that I think they used the miniature towards the end when they were doing some of the, I think the ladder effect or some stuff going on. There's a lot of effects in that section. Uh, you know, um, a lot of stuntmen. It was, it was a lot of practical effects. I mean, that's all they had back in the day. You know, you had stuntmen, you know, crashing cars and falling off buildings. We, you know, pre-CGI. So uh, what, what you typically saw was, you know, real people doing real, real dangerous stunts. So, uh, again, it's, it's kind of fun to go back to that and, and see that sort of thing. It, it's, uh, it's, it's refreshing. Awesome. And now, Mitch, anything you want to share to, to the um, listeners about yourself, you know, um, different or different movies that you want to um, tell people about that to purchase or whatever that, that has your work in it? Uh, you know what? You can support uh, the, the movies we make with, uh, with that I do, at least with uh, Christopher Mim, uh, St. Euphoria.com. And you can spell that out. It's uh, S-A-I-N-T. E-U-P-H-O-R-I-A. I hope I spelled that right, SaintEuphoria.com. And there's all the different movies I've made with, with uh, Christopher R. Mim. And we've got a few in the works right now. I know he's, he's filmed a couple. and He's filmed one in quarantine that's, that's coming. It's going to be digitally released, uh, I think, December 23rd. So right in time for Christmas, it'll be, uh, it'll be released in some kind of platform where you can stream it for a little bit. And then there'll be some physical media released later on. And then the premiere that got canceled this year, um, for the Beast Walks Among Us is going to be hopefully rescheduled next year, but we'll have to see how that goes because this, this COVID is dragging out. So it's, you know, you can never tell. And then with Josh uh, Kennedy, I'm uh, finishing up uh, a top secret uh, thing for him that I'll get to him hopefully the end of this year, the end of 2020. And then he'll, you know, unleash that on, on the, the, the audience next year at some point. So I won't talk more anything about that. I'll let him filling blanks on that one but a lot of stuff going on so keeping keeping busy during the quarantine which is good and uh so that's all you can do that's one of the reasons we picked the movie this movie and this title of the movies fits appropriate for this year you know yeah yeah to say the least <laughs> and, and hopefully it's been a mad 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 world 
Yep, and hopefully everybody will get some enjoyment out of it and have that that um brief respite. Though this this um I think this um episode is going to be our by far our longest one, and um so it'll be interesting how people enjoy it or not. Hopefully everybody. No, gets I'm a looking lot forward to listening to it. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, like I said, I'm looking forward to listening to it, and uh, it'll be fun. It'll be it will be as long as the movie. <laughs> it's going to be, it's a, be uh, close. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you'll need like an overture before you, you know, and then maybe have the intermission. <laughs> that might not be a bad idea. <laughs> well, people can always pause it and pick it up, you know, on the next day, you know, and, and that kind of exactly. Stuff. But um, there you go. But th- thank you for helping us out, Mitch, and enjoy and um and contributing your part. And um, hopefully, we'll have you in an episode down the road, um, in next calendar year in 2021, where we'll have um you do a review of the movie. And do you remember the name of the movie you wanted us to review with you? Yeah, I, I know the one we talked about was Kenny and Company, uh, Don Coscarelli, early film, pre-Phantasm. Yep, so for those listeners looking forward to hearing more from Mitch in 2021, he'll be joining us for Kenny and Company. And um, otherwise, thanks again, Mitch. Hey, thanks for having me and inviting me to this uh, this, this uh, podcast. It's going to be a fun episode. Can't wait to hear it. And um, I thought that was a, it was a nice thing, about, you know, like, like I saw it with my dad, the first time and how you get to tell them there's different things. But one thing I forgot to mention is Mitch Gonzalez is a special effects guru master who's done a lot of films for Christopher R. Mim and um, his St. Euphoria productions, but also he's done some special effects work for you, Mr. Kennedy in the house That's right. of the Gorgon. Yes. yes. And he's also designing the Mantipus in Mantipus. Uh, I don't know if that's a big secret or not, but uh, yeah, that's, we're looking forward to creating the giant mask for Mantis. He's a great guy. He's awesome. It won't be a big secret after this episode airs in next yeah. September. So. <laughs> now, this might be a little bit off topic, but as you've mentioned Mantipus, what is a Mantipus? Yeah, I was going to ask that too. It's a half man, half octopus. Well, that oh, makes sense. That's, okay. <laughs> that's not what I thought it was. <laughs> it's a man it's the body of a man with the head of an octopus ah, does it have tentacles oh yes well then it's not just the head of an octopus it's also the body of an octopus unless the tentacles are on the head well, I mean the body of a man and his head is an octopus oh the, so the it's bo- a full octopus yeah. on the shoulders yes okay well, that's cool yeah <laughs> we'll see guys it's not done yet. We'll see. Is this your tribute to like Octoman? <laughs> mm, it's Octoman and basically every octopus, giant octopus movie ever. Um, it's, there's a lot of, uh, we're going off topic, uh, a lot of um, uh, Michael Guff inspired lunacy in this one. Um, but I like, uh, just to sum up Mitch's thing, the idea of it being a generational thing. Um, because Steve, you saw it on TV. I'm sure it was a big event. Everyone needs to be gather around the TV and see this thing. And it was almost like, like, like a, an annual thing. I, I was talking to my buddy Dan about how it was, it was on every year, apparently around Christmas or whenever it was. And like, it was, it was a big event. And I, I just, again, to go back to what I said about it being a time capsule, what a nice little piece of Americana. Um, and that's, uh, that's, I know we're going to go into the, the, the if we recommend it or not, but that was, well, 
I'll, I'll save it. <laughs> save it till we recommend. And, and one other thing before we get to recommends, um, we have um, a contribution from Derek M. Cook from Monster Kid Radio. Oh. And um, we're going to listen to his contribution right now. Do lady, you're trying to split us up so it becomes every man for himself and every woman for himself and every monster for himself. Hey, what's up, gang? This is Derek M. Cook from Monster Kid Radio and a number of other things. But I want to focus on the monster kid part of what I do for this look at it's a mad, 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 mad monster party. No, it's a mad, 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 mad. You know what? I always get caught up. I can never remember how many mads there are. And I'm going to go a little bit mad as I look at this film and wonder, what if, what if this film was populated with an ensemble cast of horror and monster movie icons, actors and actresses that were working in the horror movie genre that were still alive when this movie came out. So unfortunately, no Bela Lugosi. There are so many other actors and actresses that could have slid into this movie and turned it into a mad monster mash. Mad, 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 monster, mad, world, party, world, mad, monster. Anyway, let's begin. Now, I'm not changing the story overall. There might be some tweaks here and there based on the actors and actresses that I have to slide into certain roles, but basically it's the same movie. And if anybody were to see this imaginary movie, it'd be pretty evident to them because Spencer Tracy hasn't been recast. You see, Spencer Tracy was in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, one of his only horror roles. This was a movie that came out in 1941. So we're going to keep him in his role as Captain Culpepper. But we're going to change a lot of the rest of the cast. Let's start with Smiler Grogan. Now, I'm going to replace Jimmy Durante with somebody who liked to have cameos in films here and there. Somebody who was comfortable in front of the camera because he would always do these really unique trailers. I'm talking about William Castle. Yeah, I want William Castle to play Smiler Grogan. He's the one that sets everybody else off on this mad, mad cap, mad, mad Martian, mad Max, Max. Mad Monster, Mad Mad World Party Adventure. So yes, it's William Castle, the director, is playing Grogan. Now, he's only in the movie for a very short period of time. You know, it's really his money that everybody's going to be going after. And he sends a handful of people off on their way after his fatal car accident. Let's talk about how we switch those people up. Now, I'm going to ask you to bear with me when I tell you that I'd like to see roles like Jonathan Winter's character, Lenny Pike, the furniture mover. Why don't we swap him out with, bear with me, Tor Johnson. Yeah, I want to see Tor Johnson in that role. There were a couple of big brutish type characters that I could see doing that, mostly because he tears down the gas station in the film, and I just would love to see Tor Johnson go to town on that. Could he handle the rest of the movie? Well, I guess we'd have to tweak the script a little bit to move on to some other characters in the film. Well, it's unfortunate that Lou Costello was no longer around by the time this movie came about, but we still had Bud Abbott, and Bud Abbott needs to be in this movie. He did do a handful of monster movies, after all, and he was in one with, well, Lon Chaney Jr., and we're going to put him in here as well. We're going to team these two guys up, because I think Lon Chaney Jr. and Bud Abbott would just be a lot of fun playing the roles of Benji and Bingbell, respectively. Buddy Hackett swapped out for Lon Chaney Jr., Mickey Rooney swapped out for Bud Abbott. I'm going to reunite another pair for my next two casting picks. I'm talking about Mr. and Mrs. Crump. 
Melville Crump was originally played by Sid Caesar. Monica Crump was originally played by Edie Adams. The Crumps are now going to be played by Basil Rathbone. And you cannot have a Lon Chaney Jr. movie without having Evelyn Anchors in it. So Evelyn Anchors will play Mrs. Crump. These two played off each other in one Sherlock, excuse me, two Sherlock Holmes films for Universal. And, you know, they've got the horror movie cred, too. You've got Milton Berle playing J. Russell Finch. Well, I want to swap him out, mainly because I want to see Christopher Lee wearing that costume. I want to see him have an opportunity to really flex some comedic muscles here. So I put Christopher Lee in that role, and then the role of the British Army lieutenant that shows up to kind of help him out a little bit, originally played by Terry Thomas, who does have some horror movie cred with some of the amicus films. But I'm going to swap him out with somebody who's got a lot more horror movie cred, Peter Cushing. That's right. we got to have Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee in this movie together. Come on. And who's going to play Mrs. Finch? One of the only actresses that I feel like could stand up to the image, the, the presence, the charisma of Christopher Lee. And that's got to be Barbara Steele. And Mrs. Marcus, I mean, you got to go with Elsa Lanchester. Let's go ahead and tag out Phil Silvers for Claude Rains as Otto. Let's swap out Jim Backus for Tom Conway. We'll swap out Ben Blue as the airplane pilot with John Carradine. And we're even going to swap out Peter Falk with Peter Graves. You know, I could just go through the entire cast of It's a Mad Mad... I'm not going to say the title again, but I could just go through the entire cast and I could just start swapping names out with names from my beloved monster movies. I'd even go as far as saying making one tiny script change. Instead of having three firemen at the end, we're going to have two firemen at the end because they're going to be played by... Bear with me. Duke Mitchell and Sammy Petrello from Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. Hopefully, I didn't lose you with that one. But before I push my luck too far, I'm going to wrap up. Congratulations to the Diecast Movie Podcast, to the Turek family, and to all of you listeners who managed to make it through my segment. Ugh. And I have been told by the producers that I have up to two minutes to pimp myself. So start the clock, ladies and gentlemen. I am the producer of the Monster Kid Radio podcast, which you can find over at www.monsterkidradio.net. You can also find us on YouTube. We have a Facebook page, group, and Twitter, and even on the weekends, we show movies on our official Twitch channel. We also do that on Tuesday. Just look up Monster Kid Radio at Twitch or go straight to monsterkidmovie.club. Not only do I produce the Monster Kid Radio podcast, but I'm also launching a role-playing game and gaming imprint called Dice Monster Dice, which you can find at dicemonsterdice.com. We also have a YouTube channel for that as well, so go check that out please subscribe we're trying to level up on the youtube side of things when i'm not working on my own projects i'm working on other projects for other people involving sound i've been doing sound effects works and you can hear my foley and sound effects and sound design work on joshua kennedy's movie the house of the gorgon as well as on at least two or three other of his future productions i'm currently working on a few other things right now as well that i can't really talk about but trust me you're going to be able to hear them very very soon back to talking about what i work on for myself i'm also a writer you can find out about what i write over at monster kid writer.com which admittedly is a website that's not been updated lately but if you want to read my book monster hunter for hire supernatural solutions the mark temple case files volume one you can do that by going straight to marktemple.com that's m-a-r-c temple.com now i realized i was being funny here by just rattling things off so again monsterkidradio.net dice monster dice.com mark with a c temple.com and monsterkidwriter.com. Thanks again. And now back to what you really came here for. And I thought that was quite interesting. <laughs> <laughs> As that was I. really well spoken. 
That was very enjoyable, Derek. Great stuff. <laughs> um, Josh, let's start with you. Josh, do you recommend It's a Mad Mad, Mad Mad World? Did you just forget the title? No, I was pausing to make sure I counted the Mads. You said five Mads. I said It's a Mad Mad, Mad Mad World. I said it that oh, way. okay. I thought you said five for a minute. Uh, I said four, but <laughs> listeners will, I'm sure, will write into, please write into us at Diecast movie review podcast at gmail.com. Be the first. Yes. If you, if you can count the exact number of mads that we said, we'll, we'll, we'll put you on the show or something. I, I will say this podcast probably yeah. had to set a record for the amount of times the title was said because as we listened to everybody has put in their contributions and I think it's a mad, 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 mad world was said way more than any other title we've ever did a review with in a movie or in a podcast. You need to put a little sound effect every time we say it, when you edit it together. Every time we say the title. I will. I'll do it. I'll give like this like two-second pause right after it where the bing is, and then we'll go on to the next thing. Yeah. Or it'll just be a counter where it just counts up, and at the end it gives One, the total to everybody. One, two, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so my recommendation. I recommend it, but I have a little asterisk at the, the, the top. I recommend it in a, again, from a, film slash historian perspective it like I, I said it a dozen times on, on the, as we've been talking a slice of the performers the entertainers the shape of Hollywood at at 19 in 1962-63 like that was the cream of the crop that was what comedy was at that time TV radio we're all together we're going to make one gigantic film whether it has aged well, whether you think the comedy is good, it just as that, as a time capsule of what America was like, what movie making, big epic movie making in a comedy sense, that is how I recommend it. I mean, I'm not going to recommend it. Someone who thinks, that, you know, Adam Sandler, Will Ferrell is funny. I don't know if they would find it this funny if they think modern comedy is, it's, it's two completely different things. But yes, I recommend it with that little asterisk. Okay, we'll go to Ben. I would recommend this movie. Um, if you're a fan of slapstick comedy, uh, practical effects, stop motion that you didn't notice was stop motion. <laughs> um, big fan, big fan. Good acting. I mean, some people will probably complain about Ethel Merman's character being annoying and loud, but... That's how it was supposed to be, and that's how a lot of in-laws were portrayed at the time. They were that nagging, annoying, super loud personality that was always bringing you down. And she portrayed that to a T. This was like the ultimate monster in-law. And I have to say I would recommend it. Although if, if you're a monster in-law, that I'm sorry. Or they might not know they're the monster-in-law. It's like the villain never knows they're the villain. <laughs> so, Dad, would you recommend this movie? Yes, I recommend this movie. It has a lot of different comedy styles going through. It has verbal play, verbal wordplay. It has slapstick. It's got um, sight gags. I mean, it's really a homage to comedy from the beginning of film up to that time. You know, And that shows with getting the different cameos and stars and, and, and so on in the film and being able to show their stuff while they're still at the top of their game. 
And I think that we owe um, a big set of gratitude or debt to um, Stanley Kramer for going for it, you know, deciding I'm going to do a comedy and he just went for it. And really it, it works extremely well. Yes, it is a time commitment. As we said, like the shortest version is 161 minutes, but it does have an intermission. So if you have to, you know, pause it then and just go do whatever you got to do and then come back and watch the rest. And it, it's, it's, it's one of those things I recommend you enjoy. You know, it's, if you've seen it and you're watching it with a, a, a child that hasn't, doesn't know any of these people, I think it even adds more to it because then you get to say, well, this is so-and-so and that's so-and-so as like Mitch and I both have experienced. Well, this movie is kind of old enough that not everyone is going to know people from the movie anyway. Like unless they're a fan of the sixties movies, like people that are in their fifties, they're probably not going to know half these actors Except for, like, the big ones, but I get what you mean, where it's like you pass on the knowledge to your children or a friend that's younger than you or just a friend to experience the movie. Well, it's like the, the you and Michaela and Patrick, and I saw It's a Mad, 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 Mad World prior to us watching it for this review. You know, I went and got it, and then so it was basically, as like Mitch said, with his son, I had the same experience in the reverse that my dad and I had with it years ago. And I think that's one of these films uh, around the world in 80 days is another one, you know, where yeah. you, you pick up these different cameos and you learn that from the generation prior to you. And you're right, Ben, if it, if you have people coming into it that don't have some of that knowledge, I think they'll still enjoy it. They just won't know who all the people in the cameos are and those kind of things. But I still think it holds up even if you don't know who the people are. Um, it adds more de- adds more of um, um depth to the film and adds more um you know the syntax if you understand you know where people are coming from or who who they you know possibly have done in the past. But I mean, it's I think like like Josh said, this is a chance for us to go back and look at the like I said, look at people that don't normally have any film work out there because back in the early days of TV, that's very spotty with what you can get recording wise to look on down the road. And it's a great movie to watch with people. Like, I don't know if I would sit and watch it alone the whole thing through just because it's such a long movie, but watching it with other people, it pulls people in at different points because the comedy style changes. Like, in the beginning, it has a lot more wordplay, and that pulls some people in. And then it gets in to physical humor, slapstick comedy, and then it comes back to some wordplay. And at different points, it'll pull different people's interests back into the movie because it's such a, a beast of a film. It might not keep me fixated on it 100% the whole time, but if there's someone else there who gets pulled into it, I I pay attention more because they're into it. And it kind of has that effect where, like, the whole family can watch it because it's relatively clean versus today's comedy, and it pulls everyone in at different spots so everybody pays attention for the whole thing when you're with people. And one thing I want to add into what you just said about watching with other people, I think... All films, for the most part, I think virtually all the films should be watched in a group setting because when you're in an audience and everybody is laughing or being scared or whatever type, depending on what type of film you're watching or crying, if it's an emotional thing, it just adds to that experience. It's like watching a sporting event live 
as opposed on TV. Unless you're unless you're at a party and everybody's you know there doing the same thing. It's that group that um, um that, that shared experience. I think that's what's missing um, in a lot of film watching now. There's a lot of people who are doing it with streaming and DVDs and, and not going to theaters. Of course, nobody's going to the theaters nowadays except drive-ins. But I think that's you know that shared experience is really what's missing. And in case you are wondering, I too also <laughs> recommend this movie. <laughs> you recommend the Stanley Kramer film? I know. It's shocking, isn't it? It even has Spencer Tracy in it. I know. Um, but no courtrooms. Exactly. <laughs> There's an implied courtroom in their future, but we are not shown the courtroom. Um, no, I really do love this movie. I think people should watch the movie. I don't, I mean, it's comedy. Unless you have zero sense of humor, you're going to find something funny in this movie. So just watch the movie, at least watch it once, and then you can say you've watched it. You don't have to watch it again if you don't want to, but you should. You should want to. It's that good of a movie. Milo? <laughs> <laughs> it's, an, it's an excellent film, but um, one thing I want to mention is after we did all of our recommends and stuff like that, there was... One contributor, William Mize, who did send us um, a contribution. He does the podcast Bill Mize, or Bill Watches Movies. And it's a very good podcast to listen to. He, he takes an um, interesting approach to different movies and gives um, basically, basically like an audio cast type thing to the movie's plot, walking you through it. And a lot of the movies he gives, he focuses on the different actor or director and just gives their past history. It's almost like a a movie and, bio, and a biography type mix. And um, for whatever reason, we ended up losing his audio file and um, Bill wasn't didn't have it anymore. So I want to apologize to Bill, you know, for us losing that and not able, you know, it was uh, I'm sure a great contribution that would have been done. He was going to talk about Jonathan Winters and in more detail than we did. I hope we did Jonathan justice by talking about how much we loved uh, Mr. Winter's work, but Bill, uh, as a consolation prize, has agreed to. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's a prize, but he's going to <laughs> he's going to guest host with us down the road in a future episode. And we rolled the dice um, for him. Like he picked the the the, the number which die we we're going to roll, and we ended up rolling the family genre. So I don't know what movie he's going to pick, but it's going to be in the family scope. So it is, it's, it ought to be interesting. So you will. Have that, and again, Bill, I'm I'm extremely sorry that we lost your audio footage. All right, thank you, everybody, for joining us for this episode of the Diecast Movie Review Podcast, and thank you for joining us. We know that it's been a year, at least it's almost been a year, close enough. Um, so thank you for joining us on our journey this year, and. Hopefully you will continue to listen to us. And if this is your first time, you'll go back and listen to some of our other stuff. And thank you, Josh, for joining us this episode. And you should go check out some of the movies that he's done and the movies that he has coming out and see if they're interesting to you or not. If you want to learn more about uh, House of the Gorgons, I know uh, we have a review of it on um, that my dad, Ben, and my cousin Charlie did. Uh, so if you want to learn more about it, go check that out. But you might want to watch the movie before you listen to the review. I don't know <laughs> if you guys spoiled it any or not. Um, no. 
No, you didn't spoil it. Good. So you can watch the review before you watch the movie you if you want to. You can watch the review. You can listen well, to it, though. <laughs> yeah, you know what I meant. And so thank you, everybody, for joining us. And stay tuned to see which movie we'll pick next. Thank <laughs> you.